Welcome to another episode of Renegade Detroit Investors Podcast. I'm your host, Tommy Desmond, active broker, builder, and uh, real estate investor. I'm here with Heather. Say hi, Heather. Hi, Heather. Introduce yourself. I'm Heather. Well, very good. Now everybody knows. <laughs> That's it. That's it. All right. Well, all right. Well, what is Renegade Detroit Investors? RDI is a local real estate investment and business group that meets monthly at various locations throughout Metro Detroit. This group is about networking and doing deals. This isn't your grandma's Ria. No guru sales bullshit from the front and no smell of stale coffee, Bengay, and or disappointment. You know exactly what we're talking about. Yes. Dark little sad fucking rooms. See? Some slimy guy from the front. There he is. People that run the, you know. know. There he is. RDI is also this podcast where we sit down with interesting and successful business people getting shit done. And we pick their brains for your entertainment and education. You heard them already, but I'm sure you're familiar with Jeremy Burgess, the actual host of this podcast. So, again, if you enjoy this podcast... Please give it a like and share across the interweb. Rate it on iTunes, Stitcher, etc. It really helps. If you have any questions and or suggestions, please leave a comment or send Jeremy a message. So our special guest today is the actual host, Jeremy Burgess, for the 100th episode of Renegade Detroit Investment Podcast. Thank you. I mean, that's Remember, serious. This is your guys' idea. It was so. not our idea. We hey, didn't come up with posted. this. You both posted that you'd be willing to do it. So, hey. Masses have been requesting this for a long time. And if you volunteer yourself, I'm likely to say yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah. The offloading of responsibility is a wonderful thing. They both chimed up, and I was like, you know what? That's a great idea. We call that leverage. <laughs> that's the name. All right, well, again, for the 100th episode, something a little different has happened this time, and that is the people's voice, the Vox Populi have been heard, and the story that you have avoided forever is your own. Yes. So that is today. We have Jeremy Burgess, professional real estate investor, permaculture and urban farmer, curmudgeon and skeptic, and he is here to finally give us the dirt on Jeremy Burgess's life as an investor. Coming from the wilds of the Northwest to the wilds of the Midwest to invest in this lovely land we've got here. So how do you want to do this, Jeremy? This is your show, even though we're kind of touching all your buttons. I prepared nothing other than just I'm going to answer questions as honestly as I can and be as brave as I can. We'll see how we do. Well, I met Jeremy probably around 2011, I want to say. So I've known him for a few years now. This is being recorded in 2019. Um, And through that period, obviously anybody who's been in the investment world knows we went through quite a bit of activity. Um, When I had first met him, he was introduced to me as one of the CNN gurus back in – they had him – I think I looked it up. They had you on – in April of 2009, they interviewed you as an investor hunting for gold in them Nar hills in Detroit – and uh, basically, yeah. what's funny is everything that you had to say then is pretty similar to what you have to say to the same people now. It's like, I yeah, sold it you- harder back then. I think I said <laughs> investing in Detroit is like driving around with a truck and shoveling diamonds in the back of your truck. I had to sell fucking harder <laughs> in 2007, seven, eight, and 9 because nobody was interested. But I've, I've taken it back, but I still feel the same way. Yes, I do. Greatest opportunity of our generation, I think. That's why we came here. Well – uh, and that actually is a, a 
when we first talked about doing this, you generally have a theme for the episode. And this particular theme, I think, is probably really applicable to everybody who's been investing for any period of time, especially through the downturn, but you in particular. And that is perseverance and resilience, which is, I think Joe Delia just posted today on Facebook that that is one of the most underappreciated attributes of the entrepreneurial is the resilience. You know, and it's different names. They give it grit or they say whatever. But at the end of the day, that's really who ends up making money. I remember when I was first started doing anything, I was a kid and I remember a statistic that said one in every 10 small businesses fail. And people refer to that a lot. You hear that all the time from people like, oh, it's one, how, how do you know you're going to make any money? One out of 10 fail. It's never going to happen to me either, right? Never. Go, well, what the first thing I thought when I heard that actually was like, well, that, shit, that means I'm guaranteed to win if I only open 10 companies. Like that was like the perspective. But I was told I was an idiot basically for that kind of an idea. And I think anybody who's been doing anything that's not, quote, normal has been told they're either stupid, destined to fail, a multitude of different things. Anybody's going to tell you. It's basically an inevitability, your ultimate demise, and the heat death of the universe is coming for you. That's what everyone says. Can't but, wait. So, so who the hell keeps going? The resilient keep going. And everybody who's gone anywhere has taken hits. I've had companies I've smashed in the ground. I've had companies that did really well. And anybody who does this and makes any kind of serious success takes those lumps and keeps moving forward. It's like the Rocky quote, right? It's not how many it's not how many you know it's not how hard you can get hit or how hard you can hit it's how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward and that's damn true I think so uh, based on your story which we're going to hear here here now um, resilience I think played a, a fairly massive role in your life as Jeremy Burgess Jeremy Burgess the entrepreneur extraordinaire right I came out that way. I think as far back as I can remember, I was not very lucky in the parents department mm -hmm. and I grew up very poor with evil ass people, evil mother, evil father, not jackals, anything can't do anything. It's all going to go to shit. What are you going to do about it? That kind of thing. So I actually picked a quote out that you didn't read that I'm going to read right now. That sums um, so I didn't up scroll pretty much. Sorry. That's okay. How I feel about it. It's probably the best thing about uh, the movie Alien 3. I don't know if you guys remember the character Dylan. He was like the black preacher. Mm -hmm. man. He says, you're all going to die. The only question is how you check out. Do you want it on your feet or on your fucking knees? Begging. <laughs> I ain't much for begging and nobody ever gave me nothing. So I say, fuck that thing. Let's fight it. Boom. That's how I came out. By six years old, I started my first business, and I remember I wanted to buy a can of Coke. My parents didn't spend shit or anything on us. I drank Kool-Aid and water, and I had to beg to get that. And she said, that with no money. sugar, what are you going to do about it? And I remember being pissed off. This had happened lots Wait, of Wait, does times. that make you a bad parent? Because I do that to my kids all the time. No, you did it. Better. Oh, okay. You probably fed your kids and loved and hugged them, right? Oh, yeah. That's, that's factored in. Okay, all right. All right, so good. So I just thought, I'm just going to, what am I going to do about it? So from an early age, I discovered that work will give me everything I want and fuck them. I'm just going to go do it. And to give you an example of how persistent I came out, I don't know if I was born this way or made this way. But I cut my first lawn at six, and it was for like $4, and I Ooh. did it with a pair of scissors because nobody will give a six-year-old. I tried. I tried to get somebody to give me a lawnmower or a weed eater, 
and I walked around the block and nobody would lend me one. So I went in and grabbed scissors and I cut that 10. It wasn't that big, but when you're a little guy, like mm-hmm. six, I cut that 10 by 10 and I got my four bucks. Nice. I started weeding gardens for 25 cents. So that's, that's kind of how, I don't know if I was made that way or I came out that way and it just got worse over time. All I can think about is how I never wanted to be back in this fucking situation ever again. Mm. Ever, ever again. So, and actually, one other thing, as you bring up, nobody would lend you a lawnmower to to do that work because uh, they didn't want the liability. So, nobody gives a six year old. Not even in 1985 does anybody give a six year old. <laughs> no, it's back when they were smoking in cars. You didn't have fucking seatbelts. Nobody gave a <laughs> shit, right? I remember all that, and still they wouldn't give you a lawnmower. Oh, because you know, six. and I think that's a pretty good segue for My throwing dad in. Did at eight though? Which we, I don't. I couldn't even push the goddamn thing <laughs> even at eight. So I don't know what I was going to do at six. What if I would have got one? I would have had to go back and use the scissors anyway so <laughs> i remember that now but yeah that's uh that's how it came out i actually have a problem quitting i've actually had to learn and teach myself how to how to quit because it sounds like a good thing but to the extreme you can't let go of bad ideas mm. that's, that's very difficult how, that's one of the ways i failed is not letting go of bad ideas so. well well because one of the issues when you're entrepreneurial in nature is you see opportunities everywhere there is no absence of opportunities there's a surplus of them the question starts to become what's the most lucrative and what should you focus your energy on because if you can't chase 30 rabbits you ain't catching anything so that's a very difficult thing for people that can see opportunity uh, and i'm going to take this opportunity to throw in this legal disclaimer that we didn't hit before in no <laughs> way shape or form should anything that us or any of the guests should be taken as legal or investment advice we highly recommend that before you make any investment decision contact a lawyer and or licensed professional be an adult don't fucking sue jeremy because i'm not even here so i don't even care. <laughs> tell me you <laughs> so, sorry i had to slide that in thank you Appreciate it. I wanted to wait until that got out before I even spoke. I certainly wasn't here yet. Sweet, good. All right, <laughs> now Heather Shanks sober, is with us I'm today. Not guaranteeing I'm going to finish sober, so that's for the record. Sober. Too. sober, sober. So we'll see how it goes. So I'll actually. Do you want me to do your full introduction here? No. We're oh, we're already past that. That's already over. I didn't. I didn't scroll we'll far enough time. down. We're doing it live. So you're from. Can't read the goddamn thing. You're you're from Coos Bay, Oregon. Oof, that yeah. is a, a a pinnacle of the culture out there. I know that's one of the sad little shitty fucking town. <laughs> it was never nothing except for lumber and then spotted owl and subsidized Canadian lumber destroyed what was left of the town and basically now there's a subway a chinese place and they turn the old mill into a fucking casino saddest little shitty place uh, no. in a trailer park uh, from the 70s we were a little single wide trailers that's where Fancy. i spent my first five years born in coos county hospital which is now no longer so mm. that's where that's where it all began so when you were out there, then, I mean, this is your, – your whole life was in the, the Pacific Northwest, right? No. Just no. my first five years. Okay. When I was – Well, you're a Navy brat, old. right? Yeah. So here's what happened to my dad, right? He was a – he was going to college, met my mom, married her, knocked her up, dropped out of college, and was a manager at a pizza parlor. Uh, but then the story I'm told. So he sold weed? Yeah. yeah who knows, oh. man? This is the problem with my parents. I don't know what's a lie and what's real, right? But I know – at some point, the economy was so bad, he ended up taking a job at a meatpacking plant and still wasn't able to cover the bills. 
So he decided to join and enlist in the Navy. Okay. And back then, they didn't even pay for you to get out to your first place with your family. Yeah. So your family just had to figure it the fuck out. So at five years old, we moved from Coos Bay, Oregon to Pensacola, Florida, uh, into substandard housing that was so bad, they actually paid my dad to stay there. Wow. How it works in the military is normally you get BAH or they provide a place for you to live. Well, this place was so bad that they actually paid you in addition to providing you a free place to stay plus everything else. So that's where we moved to. And we took the worst U-Haul trip, no AC, mm. uh, all four of us, no back seat. My mother, my father, me and my sister crammed in. I remember we had like a tub, a bucket and a tub with water. And it was so hot through Arizona and Texas and everything it would overheat. We'd have to stop. We'd put the cloths in and all that. So this is like our journey to Pensacola, Florida. The promised land. Joining the Navy. So moved from Coos Bay, Oregon to Pensacola, Florida when I was five. Hmm. And then uh, when you say it was bad, what do you mean? Just roach infested, fist fights everywhere. What kind of bad are you talking? Um, similar to Detroit. Okay. I would say in socioeconomic class, culture, violence, um, quality of housing, all that was actually very, very similar. So. Mm. All right. And from there, what happened then? Well, um, I don't remember much from back then. My parents' idea of kids was wake up in the morning, go outside, and come back when the lights turn back on, right? I don't know if anybody remembers that. Probably not in the romanticized 80s version. That's that's what I did. That's all I remember is beaches and, um, well, never enough to eat or anything like that, but just beaches, kindergarten. That was when I went to my first school, did a... Half a year of kindergarten in Pensacola, Florida, before we got uh, – my dad was transferred to Guam, which is a little island mm. out in the middle of the Pacific, which is way closer to Japan than it is to Hawaii or America. And that's where we moved there. That's that's when I finished kindergarten, went to first grade, and started second grade. It's on the little island of Guam, which was – It's a colony, right? Even worse than Pensacola, Florida. Mm. Um, kids so poor made me look rich, right? Poor little Guamanians. Um, I'm glad I saw that so young, as bad as I had it. These poor little Guamanian kids. Put it in perspective. No fucking shoes. I don't know if you know what betel nut is. It's like a nut you chew. It turns your teeth red. I remember mm-hmm. kids in kindergarten who already were missing teeth and red teeth and chewing. Yeah, it cuts your gums up so the nicotine yeah, soaks in. I remember in taking and, yeah. the bus on the dirt road through the fucking jungle and yeah, we were in substandard housing a second time in Guam where they had to pay, but at least we had a floor, concrete, and roof. And these kids are literally living in dirt fucking huts yeah. on Guam. And I remember this as a kid. So it was pretty. Um, you were the 1% in Guam. It was pretty arresting. Yeah. Like, I couldn't believe, like, man, I thought, man, shit, shit sucks. So goddamn poor, all that. And then we moved to Guam. Um, and that was just a shocker. I think this is where I fell in love with barbecue, though. Guamanians fucking love pork. They are maniacs about pork. And I still have beach barbecue memories. I don't have very many pleasant memories from being a child. But one of them are Guamanians because they were they had a very open culture. My parents never fed me enough, so I had to kind of learn to be like, go be friends over go here. Go figure it out. Go sneak it out. That's why you're a foodie. You didn't have to work hard, though. They yeah. were so open. They would just come share. Come it's all they had. 
oh, amazing pork. Like my yeah. mom couldn't cook and half the shit we ate was rotten and terrible or undercooked anyway. So it was like manna from fucking heaven, Guamanians, <laughs> barbecue and all sorts of amazing pork and shit. I even ate some bats and stuff, which aren't that bad, but it's mostly pork. They love pork. So mm. I think that's where my obsession with uh, barbecue comes in too. Well, thank you, that. Guam, because I've gotten the benefit of your obsession <laughs> multiple times now. So thanks for that. <laughs> Guam was interesting. Living on a tropical island, very different. I don't know if you've ever done it. Sun rises at seven, mm-hmm. like six thirty in the morning. Sun sets at six thirty at night. Yep. Rains twice a day. It's the same temperature all the time. Hot. So <laughs> it's it's very it's a very different culture. But um, I had a great time there in some cases because neglect uh, was my ally as a child. So I got to explore nature. I remember swimming out a couple miles into the ocean. I would snorkel. This is all when I was five, oh my six, god, Jesus! Right? I would go. I would go out when the when the tide went out. It was cool because Guam's basically lava, right? And the water comes in and it creates these huge caverns. So you could walk out even as a little guy for miles when the tide went out, and you'd come to these pools, right, where you can jump into these pools, and it was like jumping into. Uh, an aquarium, yeah. essentially, with all the because they were all fish. trapped in there. So I go out my dad's snorkel, the kind of half fit, choking on seawater, and I jump in and I swim in these little holes and I walk back. Now, of course, nobody lets their children do that, right? But yeah, way better than Pensacola because I could spend so much more time doing that, wandering around, and finally going to school. So yeah. That was kind of a, a little bit of a relief in tropical paradise uh, mm. for me. So. That's also, man, that was, Guam was rough. That was, you would talk about some tough kids, some tough situations. That was probably the worst place I ever lived with getting your ass beat on the way to school and doing all that shit. Sixth graders chasing you down like that. I was glad when we left that fucking school. When I was in that school, two kids died when I was there. One I got to see. I didn't actually see him die. This gives you an idea how poorly run it was. They had these lunch tables that folded up. If you could think of a V, they fold up in a V. Yeah. One kid was playing on it, got crushed by the table. Mm. You know? Oh, it just smashed him like a book. Yeah. Think about that. That table killed pretty a kid brutal, yeah. in a school. Right. So this is the kind of school we're dealing with. Yeah. And for some reason, for recess on the playground, they had the whole thing fenced off with only one of those little exits where you can kind of go this way or that way. Yeah. I don't know why, but it was every time we go to recess, all the kids would sprint and you would try and push your way through. So it's kind of like a crowded thing. A kid got trampled when mm. I was there. So this is definitely the worst place I ever fucking lived and the worst school I ever went to. And I remember like, I couldn't believe a kid got trampled yeah, to death right? going to recess. But that's exactly what happened. So that was the worst school I ever went to. Wow. Yeah, yeah that, I mean, that's pretty high up the list. Yeah. You get stampeded to I, death. I is not a normal. Happy. I was pretty happy to leave that one. Were you able to make friends there? Did you? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I learned very early. Um, I wasn't as good at that age, but by, like, fifth grade, I had it figured out. I went to 12 different schools all together, and if you're the big guy at every school in mail, you got to fight somebody, right? It's just, I don't know it's why. like prison. It's a fucking rule. Yeah. This is the fucking rule. So, yeah, it was... <laughs> You got to get in a fight. You got to get your ass beat or beat somebody's ass, and then yeah, to figure out where you're in in the pecking and order. Then, then you're fine, right? <laughs> it took me to like sixth grade before I could figure out how not to have the fight. So up until sixth grade, there was a lot of fights, a lot of different schools. 
Mm. How did you figure out how to not have the fight? Uh, self-deprecating humor. Okay. It really goes far. Yeah. And then um, you you make them your friend. I mean, who right? beats the shit out of Chris Farley, right? Nobody you can't. Does. You can't. So Well, he was all coked up anyway. He wouldn't yeah. have noticed. <laughs> well, fortunately, I wasn't in the cliques either. So if you – I'm not a joiner mm-hmm. I mean, just because of the way I was raised. I'm not tribal. I don't join anything. I don't want to be on your fucking membership list. Well, you probably didn't expect to be Jeremy, there, you know. That's the group I'm part of, yeah. Jeremy. Or I will Versus everybody. Human. Right? I'm also a human, but I don't think of Sometimes. any other way. Than I'm not that. completely convinced you're not a machine. I've watched you cold call. It's kind of <laughs> abnormal. It's abhuman what you do. I'm motivated. I'll, I'll give you that. <laughs> I could do things I don't like forever, but give me what I want. You so. fully enjoy them. You, you enjoy things that you hate. You embrace the suck. You're like a Marine. I do. I do. If it's easy, I don't trust it. <laughs> That's just a fact. I, no? If it's easy, I don't trust it. Well, it's a fair assessment. That's pretty yeah. accurate. So everything I've ever done has been a grind, and I trust the grind. So I do pay attention to the evidence, though. But shit works, which is why I keep doing it. Anchored in pain. <laughs> it's a good way to start. I went to Catholic school. I remember that. <laughs> pain has been my ally my whole life. Yep. It's the thing I've been moving from forever. So that's also why I don't have. You know, I don't want to. It's not like this. It's not. They don't want to hear your sad story, your fucking excuses. But nobody gives a shit. Mm-hmm. Nobody fucking gives a shit. So from the Gary V school, what are you going to do about it? You can do something about it later. I have ideas, you know. But at the time, what are you going to do about it? That's that's just uh, hopelessness. Oh, guess what? I grew up with that. I fucking hated that. It's the worst thing about growing up with poor people. Fucking crabs in a pot. You can't do that. What are you going to do? Get back here. You never be successful. Yep. All that shit. I'm just such a victim. I can't help me. Well, you know what? Life isn't fair. Nope. I don't know what we're going to do about it, but I promise you, nobody's going to do it for you. That is a goddamn guarantee. But then once you do it all and you pull it off, you're just a lucky guy. You got lucky. Yeah. Overnight, you were a lucky guy. So, yeah. I don't know if too many people could say I'm a lucky guy. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm still here, motherfuckers, and you're not. So maybe that is lucky. All right. Well, after Guam, where'd it go? Boise, Idaho. You. I know. So I spent six years, five and a half years in subtropical or tropical weather. So then we moved back to the temperate northwest. But I loved moving to Boise for two reasons. The second house we moved into was actually our first step into the lower middle class. And it was in a cul-de-sac. And behind the cul-de-sac had a park. Mm. So, even though the weather changed, we were still in nature. We got a nicer house. It's not that nice. It was like a 900 square foot ranch, right? But it wasn't fucking oh, far relative apart. to mud huts and right? trailers yes, on the beach. Exactly. It's you know, substandard military housing or a trailer. Right? It's a sliding scale. We were moving up in the yeah. world. It yeah. was a nice. They're not paying you to live in this one. There were kids you sure. didn't have to fucking run from or get your ass beat. You know, like <laughs> you could walk this. This wasn't generally. You had normal kid fights. Not yeah. Like, Jesus, I really got to get past the sixth graders so I don't get my ass fucking mm-hmm. kicked again, right? So that one's going to cut me. Way better school, too. Probably one of the better schools I went to. Calish Elementary School, decent teachers, decent lower to middle class neighborhood. Probably one of the first halfway decent schools I went to. I got really into cross-country running back then. Just spent all my time outside. That was a lot of... Fun. That was also when oof, life started getting a little, little harder for my sister and I. I'll let my sister tell, uh, tell that story. But 
the physical abuse kind of ratcheted up in Boise. So that part. Because now you were older, and that was the next level of yeah. You know, that part wasn't oppression. Wasn't so great, but the school change was awesome. I got over the weather change. Boise is a beautiful city. That's back before it was huge too. I felt lucky. I got to go explore, um, hang out. It's a lot of semi-arid, high plains, plateau, desert, and farmland, and rivers, and fishing, and sawtooth mountains. And that was like the, my first real introduction to the Pacific Northwest. Because when we were in Coos Bay, we didn't do shit. We just hung around a sad little shitty trailer. Just a blue-collar Yeah, one town. Just sad town. Everybody laid off. It's, oh, it's the Mexicans' fault, the Catholics' fault, the somebody else, you know, yeah. whoever the shitty. That poor people victims. Yeah. What chance so are the Catholics getting? Stir that yeah, misery. Whatever it was, yeah. it, it ruined Coos Bay. Yeah. And Boise was not like that. It was yeah. a new, fresh, upcoming town. And that part was exciting. And with all the neglect, they had a green belt there, too. So I wasn't supposed to. It was several miles away, but I wasn't like anybody was paying attention. There were no cell phones, no GPS. Mm-hmm. So I had this beautiful green belt, and I was really into collecting butterflies and bugs and chasing shit around or just checking stuff out, fishing for stock trout and little ponds. So I just ride my bike down there. So in that sense, Boise was amazing, and what a wonderful place to hang out. Friends, too. Made some really decent friends. Did some sports shit, got into soccer, cross-country running. Mm. Not too bad. Had a good time there for the most part. I got to back up for a second. I got to know, what. so your your parents, what, what was going on with your parents that it sounds like you guys kind of did like, this sucks, sucks a little bit worse. Holy shit, this really sucks. Bit of something good going on. What was happening that it was like things they were working for were getting worse for so long before suddenly it got better? What changed? Well, it depends on how you measure it. Technically, by the time we got to Boise, my father had, I will say this about my dad, he has an excellent work ethic. So I don't know if it's genetic or if I learned from him. So, and he is not the brightest man and he's an ass muncher, but he works hard. And he moved rapidly up the military. So he was E5, and that's like when you just start mm-hmm. getting paid almost like a living that's, wage. Yeah, it's a livable level. Yeah. Right? So we were financially better, but his drinking and his violence um, got a lot worse in Boise. Um, it was bad in Guam, but for some reason he did a lot of volunteering and shit to try and get promoted. And, mm-hmm. So he wasn't around as much. So that was always better when my dad wasn't around because my mom mostly just neglected us. Just go outside, don't annoy me, right? Uh, he he, not so much. You know, he wanted to pretend to be the family and then be mad and then beat you, throw shit at you, shit like that. So we were moving up financially, but the violence and the drinking was also increasing at that time. So, what was his MOS? What did he do? What was his uh, job at the time? It was CTA, which is uh, basically. Uh, glorified admin with a security clearance. Okay. So it's crypto administrative, which is now no longer there. They're all under Yeoman, right? So you're basically a secretary with a top secret clearance, right? So you process all that stuff. So it was was a desk job though. Yeah. Desk job. Yeah. Okay. Um, Singles intelligence, desk job. That's why he went to weird places all over the world. Does that answer your question? Yes, it does. That does. Like, hold it. How did we, like, kind of, things were going bad, and then all of a sudden we got some light. What happened? Who won a lotto? Well, (laughs) my father worked very hard 
So even though we started very poor, by the time I graduated high school and left, they were firmly in the middle class. So I'll give credit where credit is due. We went from poverty in a shitty little sad little town where everybody like – where a minimum wage job was considered a good job, right. right? To way better than that. So he did successfully yank us out of poverty, which I do appreciate. That was terrible. Those the benefits of it just didn't seem decided, to land on you. Yeah, because now that you were yeah. in the quote-unquote suburbs, it was time to have some of those suburb problems. Well, I think he didn't have to work as hard at Boise, <laughs> which is why he started drinking more. I just remember yeah. he started drinking a lot more, and I just tried to stay away from home. That was like stay away from home. Go to school, play outside, come in when the light turns off, uh, mm. when the lights go out, and then go right to bed. Yeah, That's like... So that, that was your plan. It got really bad there in yeah. Boise, though, too. And you don't drink at all. So is that Not a anymore. reason? No. Well, I, kind of skipping ahead quite a bit. But, yeah, I started drinking when I was uh, at your... <laughs> like, what the hell's making noise? Put that shit on airplane mode, Tommy. You fucking amateur. I forgot. It's Google Voice. I forgot that. This is quiet. I'm like, what the hell's making noise? Aren't you trying it's, to do a podcast? It's, it's unfortunate because if my phone was the one that rang, it's got a really cool song about how every time my phone rings, money happens. So that would have been a much cooler thing to have interrupt us. Sorry about that. <laughs> <That's okay. laughs> we'll do it live. <laughs> so anyway, yeah. I mean, it seems to be that that, again, is one of the resilience you know elements that have seen people who – use excuses in various ways like oh i'm an alcoholic because my father was an alcoholic and then you get the same another person could say i'm not an alcoholic because my father was an alcoholic so it's an internal thing that happens and i'm sure that at least when you did when you were younger and you were in, in the navy yourself you saw yourself doing things that probably struck chords and that's probably what gave you a little bit more insight than not to well, I will, stop I will early right get to when we get to that point yeah but i started drinking fairly regularly when i was 14 Okay. So it was a good way. By the time I got to 14, there was just no way I could tune it out. Yeah. So my strategy became ignore it, right? And anything that could help you ignore it yeah. was the solution. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And alcohol just happened to work particularly well for me. Yeah. And for a lot um, of I still people. kind of have that problem this day. I'm not the funnest guy. I kind of have a hard time having fun. Alcohol was the, you know, got rid of those inhibitions helped me forget and it became something I ran back to time and time again. Mm. So by the time I was like 21, it was a serious problem. Like it was a serious problem, but it started when I was 14. Yeah. Yeah, It's a long run. Yeah. That's why I don't drink anymore. Yeah. So then, well, after that, after you're, you're in uh, Idaho, then where back London, England. Oh, I didn't even know that. Yeah. Moved to London, England. That was how fancy you are. Yeah, I went to an English school for fifth grade, Roxbury Middle School. Did you wear a tie? Uniform tie. Nice. Little cardigan. What were you, Gryffindor or fucking Hufflepuff? Which it was weird. They had no grades. Like, you didn't get grades on your papers. You just passed or failed. Like, it was I'm sure strange. they just check your surname to see what job you're getting. It was a strange year. Uh, I was already used to being around different people, but England was definitely. Um, Took a little while for the kids being the only my sister and I being the only Americans in an all English school. That kind yank. of yank. You're a yank. There yeah. are no Americans. And there. then we were. Oh, by the way, we're out of the middle class neighborhood now because everything's so expensive, even mm-hmm. in shitty socialist Europe. That now we're back in the lower income mm-hmm. neighborhood again and going to the lower income school for fifth grade, which fucking sucked. Nice. 
Yeah. And then from beautiful weather all the time to raining all the goddamn time. So back to the Northwest, pretty much. Man, I was, I was, <laughs> there's lots of things I liked about England, but that was a little bit of a, of a letdown to go from, hey, we made it to, oh. Not so fast. How old are you right now? I think we moved there when I was 12. Okay. All right. 12, 12 years old, London, England. Went to Roxbury Middle School for fifth grade. Um, my parents are so weird. I know why they did all this shit now. They pulled us out of school. They wanted us to, uh, my mom made up some bullshit story about how I wanted to get you prepped for high school so you can have the junior high experience. So for sixth grade, pulled us out. Uh, we went back to uh, Department of Defense Dependent Schools, which at least was better than Roxbury Middle School for sixth grade. And then on the seventh grade to uh, London Central High School which is also like a boarding school, Department of Defense Dependent Schools. So mm. slightly better schools at that point, but still living in, you know, lower-end housing. I don't know if anybody's listening, but Rainers Lane, North Harrow, you know what I'm talking about? It's like that west part of London. Mm -hmm. I don't know what it's like now. It's been what, 25 years, some shit like this, but I'm sure it's changed. Neighborhoods change all the time. But yeah. it was low-end working class Kind of shit, kind of grinded out those kind of kids. At least those kids weren't as violent as uh, as in Guam. That was nice. Hmm. So English are a little bit more civilized that way, I guess, or at least in the neighborhood. The neighborhood I was in, that was also finally when I got in the junior high um, after school curricular activities, which saved my fucking life. It's probably why I'm not a criminal. When you look at my those uh, what they call those childhood adversity experiences and it's one out of 10, anything above a four, mm -hmm. I'm a nine out of 10. I should be a criminal in jail. So in sixth grade though, when I went to London central high school, they had after school programs and they would bus you back and forth. I don't know how much money they to spent. the cricket pitch. No, this is all oh. American. Oh, I just so guessed. Just, yeah. So you're doing all American sports and it was like an hour and a half drive each way to school, but they would still bus you back. So I immediately signed up for wrestling um, I did cross country and I did track and field and just not be home. And that's probably why I'm not in fucking prison is I got into sports and it gave me an outlet for all this energy and then to not be around or not be on the streets or not be doing other stupid things that you start to do around that age, right? Mm -hmm. 12, 13, starting at puberty. I got very aggressive, very angry, and I got to just pour it all out in these sports instead of doing stupid shit on the streets. So I'm a fan of sports programs and bossing people around because if you're in a bad situation for some people, it's the only place. It's a lifeline. Yeah, that and libraries. I read mm -hmm. thousands of books as a kid. It's one of the few things my parent, my mom would take me to because it was free, right? The library or the libraries in the school. So I just read thousands of books that way too. So between books, and after school sports activities, that's, I think that's one of the reasons why I'm actually not in jail or a criminal or a statistic. So hmm. thank God for that. That's just sheer luck. Yeah. Just sheer luck. Yeah. No, well, it's impressive. And I sucked at wrestling. You got to imagine most kids get started first and second grade. Yeah. I'm coming into wrestling in seventh grade. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I didn't fucking win a match to like my fourth year. Like, but you had been street fighting with 
Guamanian kids. So, I mean, it gives you a little bit. I didn't bit. win every one of those fights, man. It's all right. We'll go back to Rocky. What did Rocky say? Goddamn, sixth graders are huge, man. He kicked my ass multiple times. I got a few good licks in, but I didn't definitely did not win. It's all right. Don't feel bad. I've been in a lot of fights, and I've lost far more than I've won. That's how it goes. I fought in all of them, though. <laughs> Well, fight. Irish Some stupidity. Of fight is like a strong word. I, <laughs> some resistance. Right? You kept getting up and going back into the fetal demolition. position over and I over was again. I fast at running back then. That was before <laughs> uh, back surgery and getting fat and all that. So I was a fast ass kid back then. You fucking ran. So, so track and, and track and field was training. You ran as fast as you fucking could. <laughs> that's how you did it. And you didn't stop until you were inside. That was safety. You know, you did good in the zombie apocalypse. It worked most of the times. So you got cut off or cornered or shit. So not good. Not good. All right. Well, that's, I didn't even know that. I, I don't think out of the many years I've known you, I've, I ever even knew you lived in England. So that's a that's where that's where all your class comes from. Thank you. I can't say people have said I've had class before, but I will. I will take it. My culture, you mean? Maybe. Yeah. No, I made all that up. So I will say this: I do love the English culture and civilization. Um, from all the West is the I best. Can, I did like. There are aspects. I end up. We end up moving to Italy. We'll get to that point. But it was a. It was an amazing culture. I think we're at that point and, now. And a lot of things. What? Well, after England. No. Oh. For eighth grade. But wait, there's more. There's more. Move to Gaeta, Italy. My father got transferred to Com Six Fleet, which is the Admiral ship. I think it was the was it USS LaSalle. I don't know. There was two ships. Anyway, fucking paradise. Fucking paradise. Gaeta is a small little sleepy town of twenty five thousand Italians, mostly fisher people, tradesmen, baking bread, pizza, all that. It's a little peninsula. In the summer, it swells up to about 75,000, 80,000. It's one of the beaches that a lot of Europe, especially Germany and Switzerland, which are just immediately north, come down to vacation at. So I was went to... Uh, it's like the Florida, yeah, Northern Europe. Independence. Even looks kind of like it. First time I got real food, too. So besides, I was a, it was a barren wasteland in food between Guamanian pork before I got to Gay Italy. Just... Fucking garbage, right? I mean, England's not exactly known for its great cuisine. Man, what an amazing culture. Anywhere you go, best goddamn food you ever had. Fresh fruit and fresh vegetables, like first time in my life I'm seeing a lot of this shit. Hundreds, if not thousands of varieties of tomatoes, eggplant, olives. I don't know if everybody remembers the 80s in America. Everything was the same. There was one apple in the fucking store, one tomato in the store. There were two olives, black and green, right? This is all I'd ever seen before internet. Same dog shit in England, some funny stuff you don't like, like salmon pate and marmite and some stuff you can't handle, like currant-flavored Coke and mm-hmm. uh, shrimp-flavored chips. and Crisps. Crisps, whatever. They're terrible. Yeah, I like them. You just weren't hungry enough, Tom. They're fucking good. <laughs> I didn't say I wouldn't eat them. I just yeah. said they're terrible. I, I like them. I thought maybe I haven't tried them since, and maybe they are dog shit. <laughs> You know, when you're hungry and you're starving, like everything is fucking delicious. But then I moved to Italy. I get fresh seafood for the first time in my life. Mm -hmm. Um, Real food, fresh fruits and vegetables. The Italian culture is very interesting, but the Mediterranean Italian culture with food and family, the weather always being great, exceedingly safe. 
the worst thing that happened in this town is sometimes some shit got stolen, right? Like, so like for in a real safe town, you can go anywhere, very friendly Italians, and it was fantastic. The best part was my father was never fucking home hardly ever because he was always out on the ship. Mm-hmm. So it was like heaven. Yeah. Man, I just go to school, then I go play, and I go hang down, then I would come back late. Gorgeous women, amazing food, amazing culture. It took me about a year to start to get some sort of conversational time, which I've since forgot. You were a teenager by this Most point, of, right? Let's see, 14? Yeah. 14? Just in time for Italian girls to start registering. Yeah. Then it sucked, though, because then I had to make a choice. There, After eighth grade in Gaeta, there was no high school, so I had to choose. I had to either do a two-hour trip every day each direction to Naples to go to high school. So it's about a two-hour drive south, right? So I had to spend four days in a bus. And the Naples Department of Defense Dependents High School was a rough high school. Or I could go back to London to boarding school to London Central High School where I'd gone for seventh grade. And, I, man, I really hated. And for some reason, my mom just let me decide. Cruel bitch. She probably didn't care. She probably didn't care. It's like, where where do you want to go? Do you want to go here? Do you want to go there? I was like, well, if I go there, I hate to leave Italy, but I don't really want to go to a shitty school. And if I'm there, I don't have to see either one of them. Yeah. Right. So for ninth grade, I decided to go to boarding school and uh, London Central High School. This is a sad story. I got jumped by 15 guys, and I'll tell you why. I got my ass beat for 30 minutes. Uh, my mother liked to start fights and drama, and she went after this one bitch, Murphy, who had two kids. And it's always a Murphy. She sold drugs there in Italy too, right? Like my mom's a bad person, uh, not just for selling drugs. I don't have a problem with drug dealers, but if you're in the military or a spouse in the military, there's no selling drugs. There's no yeah. doing anything. Anyway, she ended up in a dispute with this lady, and somehow this blew out of control to where this lady's kids put together a gang that targeted me and London Central High School. So what I did was put a plan in place, left my door unlocked, told them to come down and give it your worst. I also told the adults what time they were going to show up. This plan worked out great, except for they showed up 25 minutes late. (laughs) So I had to get my ass beat for 25 fucking minutes. I was smart enough not to throw a punch. And I was smart enough to keep on my feet, and they didn't want to hit me in my face. So I taunted their fucking asses the whole time. Mm. I remember they were beating me harder at the end than the beginning. I have pictures of this somewhere if I ever get it from my mom. I was bruised over like 90% of my body, piss blood, all that. The reason why I talk about this, not just because of my evil-ass mom, but it created the single greatest opportunity of my life. After that... The Department of Defense Dependent Schools decided that there should be another option for kids. Instead of having to choose Naples, I'll go to London Central High School. And one of the schools they targeted was a private school in Rome. It was called the American Overseas School of Rome. This is a private school. It was for ambassadors' kids, UN kids, high corporate officials, Americans. It, it was an international school. We had Jews. We had the whole world here. Everything was taught in English, so you can go, but it was an international school, and that was the first year they had created their boarding program. 
So I got to go back. I didn't have to stay there. And I got to go back and live in Rome for a year by myself. Badass. At the American Overseas School of Rome in a hotel because they didn't have the dorm program. There was no dorm. So, and the government was writing the check. So they just put us up in the hotel. Did you make sure that those kids who beat your ass knew? See, this is before cell phones. You could have sent a picture of you in your hotel room. Let them know, hey, thanks, bro. <laughs> thanks, you bastards. <laughs> the best thing about that was after that, nobody fucked with me. I didn't go down. And that's when I started powerlifting. Hmm. So I actually started in seventh grade. But by by ninth grade, I was – and by tenth grade, that's when I actually started winning in wrestling. Like I'd finally – like started to catch up. So by by tenth grade too, I'm in pretty best some of the best shape of my life and actually can be physically and was physically and posing and taking a beating for twenty five minutes from fifteen people and not going down. That just spread throughout the entire it was a huge hubble up. People got fired in the Navy, people lost their jobs in the Navy. It was um, a shitstorm. It was a shitstorm, right? When Rocky kid, would have been proud of you. When somebody's kid gets beat up by other kids. Like gang that, jumped. I mean yeah. you're getting gang jumped, you're not getting beat up, you're getting mob hit. Shit. Fortunately I was fine. Just besides getting a severe ass beaten, I was fine. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I got to go to Rome. Yeah, that's worth it. <laughs> oh, my God. I wish somebody would beat my ass. I'd right take a 20 now. minute yeah. ass whipping right now to it move to Rome. It was worth it. Yeah. Happiest year of my life as a child by far. Hmm. The American Overseas School of Rome idea of education and raising young kids and doing all this stuff was extremely liberal. I'm a little liberal, artsy fartsy with literature and history and all that stuff. It was actually the first time I was. Classically liberal education. I was born a smart kid. I figured out pretty pretty quick I was a smart kid too. And the first school that actually even remotely challenged me and was interesting in a real education. None of those shitty public schools or department of defense schools where you're not really learning anything. Well, it's still based on the great books and everything over there, right? It was fantastic. And then they didn't want you studying too much because they wanted you to go experience culture and do plays and do – but they're also very liberal. Like you could smoke on campus if you wanted to yeah. and shit like that, right? But nobody paid attention to you. So you can go to the dorm. You can go to school. You can go to the movie theater. You could explore. It was college. So I spent an entire year with friends, learning, participating in sports, and just checking out something new in Rome every day. Unfortunately, though, in Italy, they will sell minors alcohol, at least back then was really easy to do right so that is when i started to develop my uh my drinking habit when i was there i would just go on and i was like well maybe i'm just gonna try and buy this alcohol right i'm a bold guy i'll try some shit right i go on buy the assault to anybody yeah so that's where i started drinking was in realm so that part maybe not so great but the food the experiences the museums the, all this shit i can't even believe all the stuff i got to nobody's see nobody's paying attention it's paid for and i can party that's exactly <laughs> yeah. that's exactly what i did and it was fantastic and now you're talking what 15 16 years old i left i was almost 17 when i left it was like 4 months before i was 17 3 or 4 months all right yeah moved to fucking tacoma washington god mm. damn it talk about a culture shift you, well, first of all, any city after Rome is just going to be a disappointment. Yeah, yeah. It just is. But I find Tacoma, Washington, a particularly brutal and cruel choice. <laughs> Back to a public school again. Elisa wasn't too terrible. Hold uh, on. What's the how-why? 
Like obviously, well, in the military, they move you every two to three years. Yeah. yeah. Um, the why, my father always tried to pick something that would improve his career so mm-hmm. he could advance faster. I'm not sure what about this particular place advanced his career more, but that was his. There was so some analysis you rendered. Baby. You had to not only go move from Rome to Tacoma, but now you're back with mom and dad. Too. Yeah, which was terrible. Especially after yeah, that kind yeah, of freedom. Yeah, this is when my drinking started. Like you couldn't get, emancipate yourself. You couldn't. You were, I didn't even you have were, the idea yeah, you were, you of something were, yeah, like yeah, that. Mm. Yeah. Nobody did that shit, right? Like, I, so my it was so sad. Mm. I moved back. I was tricked for four weeks because it was August and it was gorgeous weather, but I didn't realize you only got to see the mountains two months out of the ten, mm-hmm. and the rest of the time it's gray and drizzly, and everything I love to do is outside. Yeah. Uh, so the land of culture to the land of fast food and wires and roads. And I'm a little disadvantaged, too. Don't know how to drive. You don't drive in Europe. Yeah. You know? So here I'm, coming, I'm almost 17. Still haven't driven a car, right? You just take buses or the subway or any of that other shit over there. So I had to learn and do some stuff. But that was pretty disappointing. Back to a shitty school that wasn't challenging at all. Went to 12 different schools. Uh, that was when I and living with your parents again too, right? Well, living's very loose word. Like as I'm doing this, I'm figuring out more and more ways not to spend time at home. Well, it's seventeen. I mean, it's whatever yeah. the bare minimum is. So signing up for sports, I started um, a company with my friend Andrew. We would do lawn cutting, thatching, and cutting down trees. We would undercut the labor because we didn't have insurance and all that shit. So we go do that. So I put that together. We were doing that wrestling, football, track and field, um, girlfriends. Just don't be home. Best friend, Jason, don't be home. Well, I mean, I can imagine. Not much to do in Tacoma, Washington. If you don't want to get fucking wet and miserable all the time. I did all the mountain biking. I did all the camping. I hated it. We ended up doing movies more than anything else. I got tired of being cold and wet outside doing all that shit. And then for my senior year, this is where I really went off the rails. I knocked up my high school girlfriend who was an evil ass bitch like my mom. Cause you don't know any fucking better. Yeah. Right. At this point I'm drinking like a madman and powerlifting and wrestling. Yes. I end up, she has an abortion that destroys me. I end up dropping out of school and going, getting a job landscaping. And I did that for five or six months. Um, that was kind of awesome and kind of not. I did eventually end up going back. Um, the only reason I went back to school, uh, I had some teachers that went out of their way for me, and I wanted to get out of town. So I drop out, and the vice principal would check in with me every once in a while. I was like, you should come back, get your high school diploma. My parents didn't give a shit. Like, fuck you. No, I don't want to do that. Fuck all that shit. Like, really bad attitude. Like, fuck everything. I went around. Before I dropped out, I went around and told every teacher, like, fuck this. Fuck that. I'm out. Right? That's just Jeremy. Right? Fuck you. Gone. Right? <laughs> he followed up with me. That was like the beginning of the alternate schools. Right? This is like the very beginning of alternate schools. It's meant for, like, dumb people, jail, juvenile hall, summer school, can't get it all out, right? But it's like the very beginning of kind of like this charter idea, some sort of alternative, right? He finally talked me into going there, and I went. I fucking hated that, too. I had such a bad attitude. I'm almost embarrassed to tell this part of the story. So I would go, and I would do nothing. And I'd go outside, and I would smoke. 
and I'd hang, and then I'd leave, and then sometimes I wouldn't show up, and then sometimes I would. And these teachers had like infinite patience with my ass, right? Mm. And over like three or four months of me not doing anything, right, a negotiation begins that they start, right? And one good thing about being raised by a master manipulator is you get very good at reading people. You see it coming. What makes me a great negotiator a lot of times is not that I know what to say or do at all times, is I can sense weakness like that. I know when you're lying to me. I know when you don't mean what you're saying for the most part when these things happen, right? So when they came to me, I immediately recognized weakness and I just maximized that. I was worse then than I'm even. You now, manipulated right? the situation so to like, your okay, advantage. Okay, we looked and you only really have to do these two classes. You're like, right? I'm about to Lori Laughlin my way out of here. Let's That's do exactly this. what yeah, I was thinking, up? right? It was like civics <laughs> and Washington state history, right? Like, what are we talking about? A hundred? Yeah. He's like, so we'll just do these two classes. You just do the homework, you read the book, you take the test, and you'll be done. It's like, I'm not doing the homework. Is this the beginning of your outsourcing to Guam? Yeah. It's like, I'm not doing the homework they're like what do you mean you're not doing guam.craigslist.com i'm like i don't want to do any of this homework i don't give a shit about all this stuff and they're like okay you don't have to do the homework but you do have to read the book and take the test i was like okay only if i could do it in the same day though i only want to come in one more time i'll do it all at once and like no you can't do that i was like fuck it i'm not doing it (laughs) i'm I'm like okay (laughs) you come in here but we have to see you read the books And then you could take every single test, right? So <laughs> I don't know how they were so patient with me or Todd suggested that they got paid to do it. So they're like motivated to like, we got to get this kid through. We don't get our money. Hitting the numbers. Maybe it was a combination of both. I don't know. But fine. Like, okay, deal. Right. <laughs> so I actually come in for my one honest to God day's work after four or five months of this bullshit. I sit down. I come in first thing in the morning. I read the civics book. I take every test. I read the Washington State history book. I take every test, which, of course, I pass with flying colors, and that's how I graduated from high school and got a diploma. So, and that was, man, I was kind of close, too, because with all my fucking around, I think that was, like, in May, right before. So I really, really cut it close and then passed and enlisted in the United States Navy. Got the fuck out of Dodge. I thought about college. I applied. Um, I got into a bunch of places, but at that point I knew, like I was, I knew I wasn't up to any good, right? It was like, why am I going to get a bunch of student debt? The idea of going to college or school anymore at that point was just done with me. If they had to convince you to go to what you were doing, it's probably not going to be the, yeah. They had a $40,000 bonus to go into the Naval Nuclear Program. So I was like, $40,000? Are you fucking shitting me? Yeah. When do I get paid this money? And like, well, you got to you got to make it through all this training and all that stuff and and then I get paid the money? Yeah, and they had this program, you immediately become E4, then you get promoted to E5 and then you get this You started at bonus. E4? Yeah. Wow, that's great. They really wanted you to do it. Not yeah. very many people can. Well, it's pass the the it. ASVAP score that you need for that's that high, shit. yeah. Yeah. So that that's why I yeah. became a nuclear machinist mate engineer there in the navy was based on the forty thousand dollar fucking signing bonus that seemed way better to me as i'll get to party i'll get to travel the world motherfucker give me 40 grand i'm gonna get paid to do it they take care of my food i have a place to sleep i don't know what i want to do but i know i want away from here as fast as possible so that is exactly what i did i got the fuck out as fast as possible made serious error turns out 
I hate being an engineer. Just because you're good at something, I didn't realize what it really entailed, right? I was motivated by the $40,000. I'm like, wow. They don't even give it to you all at once. They give me like ten grand, and then anyway, they give it to you slowly over time, so you probably don't fuck it all Give it to you like a contractor they don't trust. Here you go. You get little pieces, and that just seemed like a way, way better deal. But then when you get there, I liked the school. That was actually the first time I've ever been challenged in my life. That was hard. Mm -hmm. First time you're not the smartest kid in class, too, either, right? So that, that was a shocker. Right, you go to this, you go to this place where almost everybody else is smarter than you for the first time ever. So, and I'm I've been competitive from day one, so I get my ass kicked. I'm not prepared. I don't know how to study. I don't really know how to learn. It was just way too easy for me. I remember things. I didn't do any serious study or work through school. I could just remember it. And then I show up to a serious school where you, you need to know how to learn. Yeah, you need to know how to do these things. So when I went to A school, man, I. Man, I sucked. I ended up in the 25% of the class, 3.2. I'm like, shit. Fortunately, the Navy doesn't like wasting money, so they do spend a lot of time teaching you how to learn, which I'm forever grateful to the United States Navy for all the shit I could talk about it. I don't know how they don't teach you how to learn in school, but they never do. The United States Navy did. So by the time I got to all that other shit, you know, thermodynamics, uh, reactor principles, all that other stuff. I actually knew how to learn. So I started moving my way mm-hmm. up, finishing the top 10% and the second one. Went to prototype where I killed it because that's where work really matters. Prototypes, you actually go to the sub. That's a labs thing, right? Yeah, you're in Charleston, South Carolina. They have two subs moored on the side. And they basically cut out the middle part of the boat and just leave mm-hmm. the engine room so you get to learn how to run a nuclear reactor. Yeah. Turn all the valves, do all that. But that's almost like an apprenticeship. You get a book that you got to memorize shit, and then people test you on it. So I finished that in 13 weeks, number three in the class. Nice. Still don't really know what the job entails, though, right? (laughs) You academically understood it. Show up at fleet. Do you know what the job entails? Logs every 30 minutes. Small valve maintenance. The bureaucracy begins. And cleaning the bilge. Mm. Mm, This is my job. Oh, oh, and constant training, right? From the Navy, from uh, nuclear react, everything. You get so you're no a sanitation sleep, engineer. And you're like, how the <laughs> fuck did I end up here? You don't know what day it is. Like, Sunday doesn't even matter anymore. Like, <laughs> what day is it? I knew it was Wednesday because Wednesday was Mexican day. And I knew it was Sunday because on Sunday in the morning, you got steaks to order for breakfast. And that's that's the only meaning in life. And you just... <laughs> Every day is the same. It's fucking. That's, that's where the smell of stale coffee and regret uh, came from. And that's the entire <laughs> goal of engineering, right? Is to make every day identical to the last day. Yeah, systematize it. Oof, that was rough. Where <laughs> you time? When I try and imagine time back then, it just all kind of melts together. It doesn't help that at this point in time. I am drinking like a madman, and I have moved my way up to meth, amphetamines, and cocaine as well. Yes, I did this in the United States Navy. Um, I'm not proud of it. I'm just telling you what I actually did. So by this point, I'm also a maniac, right? Station me in uh, Point Loma out of San Diego. Uh, put me way too close to Tijuana, Mexico, and the whorehouses and the drugs and all the booze. I just worked my ass off there. I didn't. I practically didn't sleep. Like I just went and sleep. Well, you probably couldn't. Well, you didn't sleep when you're underway. You were hopped up. <laughs> at this point, I'm like sprinting from my past, and you just can't, you just can't forever, right? So I had what I call a moment of clarity. 
had a moment of clarity. I remember this chief who was 33 years old, looked like he was 55, and he was on his fourth wife. And he was trying to convince me that I should sign for the extra two years for an additional $40,000 bonus. Yes, they would actually give me eighty grand to do eight years in the United well, States. Well, at that point, you're trained to a pretty high-level position. They don't, they don't want to lose you. They don't want to lose you. And I remember having this conversation, and this is part one. I looked at him, and he looks 25 years older than he should be, right? Pale skin, fourth wife. And this is every motherfucker on the boat. I'm like, what am I doing? That moment passes, and about two months later, after an epic bender, something like... Just waking up in a dumpster kind of bender? No, it was never that bad. I'm pretty good on autopilot. Yeah, that's never happened to me either. That's something proud to to be saying, (laughs) but I was pretty good on autopilot. Um, I think it was like three weeks. I don't think I slept five hours. Like I was hallucinating. Yeah, you're basically on sleep acid at that point. I couldn't afford cocaine anymore, so I'm basically just doing meth and drinking. And I was walking from my barracks, getting ready to walk to the boat. And I was like, what the fuck am I doing? I was like, I need to do something about this now, or I'm going to be like that chief, and I'm going to blink my eyes, and I'm going to look 55 at 33 on my fourth wife, and... I went and I turned myself in for drug and alcohol abuse. Uh, Everybody treated me like shit. I thought it was ironic that I'd finally done the right thing. Like, obviously, the wrong thing was drinking and drugging and operating a nuclear reactor and lying about it, right? Dangerous thing. You should not be in engineering and doing these things, right? Everybody loved me. There was no problem. Um, it was part of the culture. They wanted to give that's, you more money. <laughs> that's what I got all fucking tatted up. I'm ready to do this sub life forever, right? Sleeves, eagle across the chest, all that shit, motherfucker. I'm down, and I have this. What the fuck am I doing? I'm gonna blink. I'm gonna be doing this, or I'm gonna be dead. Or, or if I'm not dead, this is going to be my life. So I go turn myself in. Everybody treats me like shit, and that was like the very beginning of Jeremy going his own way. So like, okay, so if I actually do the right thing, nobody will talk to you anymore. Everybody will treat you like shit, and nobody wants to be your friend anymore. Got it. I don't need you fucking guys anyway. So I will say this about the Navy, though. They did send me to um, an inpatient treatment facility for five weeks. I'm not sure if it was helpful or not. It was a bunch of that. I'm not down with the AA stuff. Yeah, I went and did the twelve it step it, stuff it didn't work for me. I, yeah, every, I don't want to go hang out with a bunch of fucking alcoholics and drug addicts, especially quarter and reiterate months. your problems for. No, them. thank you. Yeah, it's I like just, the Tony Robbins idea. I quit it's going like, to why bars, do we keep talking about this? I quit hanging out with those people. I yeah. quit doing all drugs, even like aspirin or anything. I just I just quit it all. Which that's how the vast majority of people that have those issues stop. I think it's yeah. some high note, like 80 percent of people that stop. They don't necessarily do it through the programs, but they do it. As a result of those ideas after, you know? Well, I did. And ironically, about one month after my 21st birthday. So like one month of legal drinking is when I had my last And your liver was already 48? It was in October. I remember. October of of 2000 was my last drink slash drug, except for marijuana. Um, It doesn't count. 
Depends on who you ask, right? I didn't do it. I didn't. I hated marijuana as a kid. I didn't know I'd like it better as an adult, especially for back pain or any of that. But I just gave everything up. That was one month after my twenty-first birthday. So, mm. so then I got a, a other than honorable discharge, only because I put up a fight. They were going to give me a dishonorable discharge. I'm like, motherfucker! I know I shouldn't have an honorable one, but don't you want people to self-refer when they have a problem? And I put up. Uh, they were treating me pretty shitty. Fortunately, I can't remember the admiral's name. I wish he did. I was getting a hair. I got called into the admiral's office when I did all this. He wanted to ask me a bunch of questions. Because I just decided to tell the truth. I told them the truth about everything. I was like, fuck it. I'm coming clean. I'm telling the truth. I'm getting this off my chest. I'm doing all this. So he wanted to meet me. I hadn't had a haircut. I had a bad attitude. You don't want to show up to the admiral without a haircut. When I saw, I'm in the barber. I didn't know this was the admiral. He comes in. And he kind of joking and talking with me anyway. Then I leave. And then four hours later, I'm in front of the same admiral, right? So he was kind of scoping me out. He asked me a ton of questions. And I tell him everything. And I bring up to him this dishonorable discharge. And I say, I mean, I'm leaving no matter what. But it doesn't seem right to me that I would get a dishonorable discharge when I self-referred. It wasn't like you guys caught me. You probably never would have caught me. Who knows how long it would have been. If I don't come to you, you don't even know about. Look at every one of my evals. Mm-hmm. Excellent evals. All, well, except for the drinking underage when I got caught doing that. But short of that, I went from E5 to E3. Uh, yeah. Captain's mast. Don't get caught underage drinking. I know you can go kill people, but you can't, you can't drink. Whatever. That's the way it is. But because of him, I actually got it other than honorable discharge. Not that I even give a fuck anymore. I don't know why it bothered me so much then. Now I don't even care, but that's what happened. Got out of the United States Navy. Didn't know what I wanted to do. I was in San Diego, California, living in Chula Vista. Is that just where you disembarked? Yep. Yeah. Living in Chula Vista. I moved back in with my parents because I have no place else to go, right? My mom and dad are mad at me for telling the truth. This is like the beginning of the end of our relationship, too. I'm kind of starting to get past the pretending things aren't true and he said you should have come to me and we could have done it quietly and you could have stayed in the navy my family's really big in the secrets you don't tell family secrets you don't say these things i'm sure they love this that was the beginning of the end and i was like i know i did the right thing that was like one of the first times as an adult of doing the right thing it's the beginning of doing the right thing in the history of jeremy And this is the problem you have. So I go back to what I did before. I worked all the time. So I went and got a job at 7-Eleven, working graveyard shift from 11 p.m. to 7 a.m. in Chula Vista Gang Territory. And right across the street was a labor ready where if you had a car, you could always get work. You had to drive all the drug addicts with you to do the day labor shit, right? So I'd work from 11 p.m. to 7 a.m., seven days a week. And then Monday through Friday, I would go at 7 a.m. and do labor ready to four or five, come back, crash, and do that. Saved a bunch of money. And my best friend from high school, Jason Imbruglio, convinced me to go to college in Pullman, Washington. So I took my 1960 Ford Falcon Ranchero. I put all my worldly possessions in it, which was a the smallest trailer you can get from U-Haul. I filled a quarter of the way full. Fancy. I remember thinking I added up all the money I made in the Navy, and I realized I was leaving with $800 
and savings bonds from the Navy and what I saved up from the job, and I had nothing else and nothing to show for. And this is the Navy where you don't actually have to spend any money. Nothing. Because they're feeding you and, and bonking nothing. you. Nothing. And I realized I blew a fortune on alcohol, drugs, women, partying, all that shit. Well, you're definitely not the only one with that story in the military. No. So. <laughs> so, but that was also the beginning. I was like, that was a waste of money. That was a waste of life. Yes, I've learned so I convinced myself to go to college. Um, ironically, just so I can get through it faster, I decided to do nuclear engineering, even though I don't want to do it. Yeah. Because I could be done in a year and a half You've already, instead of yeah. four years. But I only made it three weeks. I literally couldn't go. It was terrible. You hated it. I fucking hated it. Here I am, 22 years old with 18-year-olds. And this is before colleges got too baby. I would never make it now. I don't even want to walk on a college campus. No. You can all fuck off, right? But even back then, talk down to you, treat you. I was like, motherfucker, I'm the customer, right? Right. Like, you know how much you. I paid to be here? I'm paying you, <laughs> you know? Um, and I realized school was not for me. School is not for me. Not not that kind of school. I want to go to people who've actually done it and learn from them. Yeah. Not somebody who can't or fucking ended up suckered somewhere, some fucking commie hiding in some capitalist school. I don't know, thanks. Not interested. Uh, that was also, oh my God, that was like the last, basically I haven't had pain free since then because that was when all that power lifting, all that heavy lifting in the Navy, I started to have a problem with my back. Pretty soon, I can't even work. Um, well, were you deadlifting on meth? That's probably what happened to you. I was doing a lot of stupid shit. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't have anybody teach me yeah. how to power lift either. That's a big deal. Oh, no. Ergonomics. There was nobody, like, nobody gave a shit. There's you can hurt yourself very bad that way. I went and I bought, with my own money, the Arnold Schwarzenegger bodybuilding book, mm -hmm. right? And I did the exercises out of that book. Hey, what that is a There's great no internet. book, yeah. There's no way you go to the library. Oh, this, I'm going to get buff. Those are pictures. The, There's before and after. There's not the whole small. middle point yeah. where you don't blow your back out part. So I did all that. Uh, Matt was miserable. I had... Two herniated discs in my back. The problem was L5, um, L5S1, and I tried everything. I blew all my savings doing therapy, trying to do everything. We tried. I wouldn't take any drugs because at this point I'm like, I'm like part of your thing. I still won't. Like, yeah, I'll just suffer. I don't need. I don't need that. Anyway, I had to go on state aid for my first surgery, and I wish I could remember this doctor's name. But she hooked me up with a friend she went to school with, which is the only reason I got a decent doctor. And he agreed to do it for whatever Medicare would pay him for it. So I got a world-class back surgery because of the kindness of someone else, too. Another turning point in my life, right? So I was like, oh, my God, I can't believe that. My best friend's basically taking care of me the whole time. I can't work. My family offers me nothing, right? So I make myself a house bitch. This is when I really get into cooking. Because I tell myself, all our friends thought we were gay forever, right? If my best friend is going to pay my rent, buy my food, drive me around, because I can't even drive at this point, the least I could do for him is have fucking dinner made and the apartment clean and the shit put away. Mm -hmm. So this is what I call my house bitch time, right? So... <laughs> I hobbled my – I had a hell of a time walking. It took me a year and a half to get the surgery. I'm dragging my right leg around. I got to like sit down every five minutes, but I turned myself into a house bitch. I start to really teach myself how to cook different things and experiment with different things just so I wasn't dead weight sitting around, right? 
I eventually did pay him all back for that shit. Finally got the surgery. Oh my God. It was so great. It's like getting your life back, right? Mm. They went in, it was L5 S1. I can, I can walk again. I can actually drive again. I can get back into the workforce. So I get back in the workforce, start as a dishwasher, work my way up to line cook, all that shit. Get a, I had a really shitty boss, end up quitting that job, which I shouldn't have done. And that's actually when I met my wife, Gina, through my best friend, Jason, who worked with Gina's sister, Andrea. And what kind of came out of this house bitch mode and cooking all the time was we'd have weekly potlucks, right? Mm-hmm. So that was what we did. We'd have weekly potlucks and land parties, a bunch of single men, right? So, so we'd hook up our computers and play war games, right? Yeah. And then have potlucks, and, and that's what we did. So that's actually how I met Gina through that. Unemployed, by the way, because I quit my job in a small town, which is bad. Because he went and told everybody else not to. Yeah, Jeremy had to learn about the politics of a, of a small town, right? That was an error. Saying fuck you to everybody on the way out. That work. was an error. I had to learn that one the hard way. It was very unfortunate. Uh, <laughs> but fortunately, Gina's uh, cousin worked for Safeway, which is like a Kroger. Yeah. Right? It's not West Kroger. And they were opening a store there. And he got me an appointment. I went into the manager and I was like, I'll take any job you got. I was desperate. It's been like five months now, right? I'm like almost down to nothing. Got this girl that I like. I'm like, I, I need a fucking job, right? I need some gas money. I need, I need something, right? I'll take any job you got. It's like, well, how do you feel about working at the bakery and showing up at 3 a.m.? I was like, I'll take it. Perfect. I love it. So I learned how to fry donuts, bake French bread, baguettes, pastries, all that shit had one of my best bosses ever, Dell Stillwall. That's the only way I could do three years in corporate America bakery. What an amazing boss I had. I don't know what this guy was doing in a bakery. Talk about talent where it need not be. There's no bread or donuts important enough in the world for that kind of leadership, right? But he was an excellent boss, and I was a handful. But it was fun because he made it fun. So I fried donuts, I baked bread, worked my way up. Um, they offered me manager at some point, but I realized my wife was still out earning me two to one, and I'm making twelve seventy six an hour with a union, and that's one dollar more an hour per union contract because I go and negotiate more. Dell was making seventeen dollars an hour, my boss, plus his meager little bonus. You start doing some math. That does not work. My best friend comes back from Iraq. It was equal parts boredom and terror. When he wasn't terrified, he read books on real estate. This is exactly how I got into real estate. And he came back and said, Jeremy, read these books. We should get into real estate. I was like, fuck yeah, we're getting into real estate. <laughs> I don't know what it is, but I know it is money We're in doing that. it, right? He's like, I can't do this anymore, right? So I get suckered into the whole, um, what do they call it, Enlightened Wealth Institute. Mm-hmm. We go to Coeur d'Alene. We sign up for some $3,000 course. which Proto leads, fortune building. Yeah. yeah. Which leads yeah. to Gene and I spending $50,000 and going and taking all these guru courses, right? And that's when I started doing deals in real estate for the first time from Pullman, Washington. Yeah, what was it? it was, was it wholesaling? They were basically I didn't the know Carlton what sheets. wholesaling was. Hmm. No. So I did an assignment, but I didn't know it was wholesaling. That was my first deal was a what I thought was a $3,000 assignment, which took me nine months to sell. 
Thank you, Tina. If you're listening to this, they were the most patient people. I got my first customer through my wife's friends at work. They owed way more on their house than it was worth. They couldn't afford to use a realtor, so I got to go fuck shit up. I thought I made three grand, but my first deal, I actually lost two grand when I went and added up all my expenses. Mm -hmm. So kind of learning that classified ads don't work, like... Yeah, yeah. I did what they told me to do. Yeah. It's the beginning of my hatred for all guru bullshit. If you actually go do what they say, you're, gonna, you're just going to end up broke. Because they're not doing it. They're doing they're other doing shit. It. They're, they're not telling it. you yeah. what they're, they're doing. They're selling you shit. Yeah. yeah. Right? There's like 10% of them are good. There yeah. are some good ones. Fortune Builders is one of the better mm-hmm. ones, and there are some decent people on Fortune Builders. There's yeah, some they're, they're, ones they too. are doing deals, at least. You at know, least they're not they're just active. selling the books. You With know? this whole Robert Allen Enlightened Wealth Institute, there was none of that shit. Yeah. Right. Here's the problem, though. This is 2005, 6. I know nothing about economy. I haven't even read cycles or any book, of that. Yeah. Right. I'm not interested. I don't go to good schools. The only school I actually go to that was good, uh, English literature, Dante, Shakespeare, like I'm getting a real classical education, algebra, trigonometry, calculus, not Adam right? Smith, no Adam Smith, yeah. no macroeconomics, nothing. And I grew up in the military, which is a fixed communist economy. Mm. Right. So I have no idea. So I start doing real estate, have success with it, right? But it was when everything was working and I didn't realize. It was really impossible to fail. Everything was exploding. Didn't know it. Just thought this is Thought you were genius. <laughs> Not genius, but like, oh, this is how it always is? Yeah. Okay, we, we all do, do this job Yeah, we can, pull this, we can just pull yeah. money off credit cards and buy houses. Okay, yeah. we'll do that. Oh, you'll just give me money? No doc, no, no income? No, oh, okay, we'll go flip those houses and... In the process, I end up buying, fixing, and flipping 13 houses in Detroit. And you found Detroit arbitrarily? It's a funny story. Another guy, Jason Kennedy, was trying to convince me to start investing in Detroit. And I thought it was the dumbest fucking idea ever. (laughs) Detroit didn't have a great reputation at the time. so I went to prove him wrong. So so you came to Detroit to be obstinate. I couldn't (laughs) fucking believe it. So my wife and I flew out here. It was fall of 2005. It was right at the height. We traveled around. I was like, I can't believe they got houses like this, like these beautiful brick houses everywhere, giving them away from a Western perspective. (laughs) And if we're speaking in metaphors and all that, I had to go east to go west. A postage stamp out west is a million dollars, right? Mm-hmm. How the fuck do you get into real estate? Like the barrier to entry is so high. You can't hardly flip. And a lot of people, the way they were making money was losing money year over year renting, but catch it up with the appreciation. So yeah. it was investing on the west coast. And even though I hadn't had a macroeconomics class or anything, I was like, that's not right. That can't last. That can't work. Yeah. Right? That's just not <laughs> – you you got to make more on rent than what your mortgage and all your other bills are. Right? Yeah. You can't. My my goal can't be to lose money for two years and then sell for more than it's worth. That can't really be what we're doing. Yeah, here, right. right. That was the West Coast play. So Detroit was heaven sent to us, and I convinced my wife, especially after lots of success, to move to Detroit in 2007. So that is what we did. We moved. To Detroit in May 2007. And I she was, had a good job, and she was you were established there. This was she not, hated her job, though. They were overworking her mm-hmm. um, like 80 hours a week, all that. She was ready to do something different. And we were making a lot of money doing this, so it seemed like a good idea, right? Like, ah, it's not kidding. It's not. We're actually making more money. You don't even need to be doing this shit. You fucking hate it anyway. 
new life. We're going to go buy a condo downtown. All this money we're making, right? Move in May and July, the crash happens. In August, I'm fucking broke. Just like that. It's like, fuck. As fast as it could possibly happen, living in a hotel in Warren, because, of course, our condo never closed. So my wife leaves me, too, for two or three months. Goes back to her family. like, fuck this. I'm not hanging around. Detroit was supposed to be great. Doing doing this shit with you, right? So I had one deal still under contract that I got such a good deal on was still a deal still made sense crash yeah right? and the only reason i had this opportunity was there were title issues they had to keep trying to fix i'm like yeah i'm still interested yeah i'm still interested so i have this thing under contract so clouds left it floating i'd forgotten about it yeah and they call me it's like hey i think we have this resolved are you still interested and of course the crash is happening so they're just desperate they're they're assuming everybody's gonna say no so i'm like of course i'm interested yeah, you're desperate too <laughs> it's gonna take me Two or three weeks to close, though, because I had other opportunities and blah, 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 blah. I don't have any fucking money. I don't know how I'm going to close You're, like, thing. literally reading from the book of some script you had. What do I got to do here? Like, well, I think there's money here, but, yeah, I'll close it two or three weeks, right? Sign addendum. I don't know how I had this idea, but what I did, too, is I went to reiclub.com, which used to have a list of every real estate group allegedly in America, and then I went and found out the medium home prices. It's all the states you think it would be, right? California, um, Washington, New York, parts of Florida, all that. And I start, my wife and I actually, she came back then. We start cold calling. So that we, we call them, leave a message, send them an email, and back then fax, right? Yep. Obviously nobody does fax anymore. And we went through everybody. And I found this guy, Scott, in Sacramento, who wanted to buy it. Problem was, I couldn't get anybody to lend me money because I just lost all my money. And For transactional yeah, funding. everybody else lost all my relationships. I just moved here. <coughs> uh, a lot of people didn't even particularly like me here, so I'm like, what the fuck am I going to do? Well, you were an outsider coming in, yes. butting in. I didn't realize the Midwest was so, you got it's who you know. Like, it's not so much like that out West. Now, I'm figuring this part out, right? Uh, so I'm like, what the fuck am I going to do? I had a title lady who helped me out she had her own escrow account still so this is how this is totally not legal (laughs) um and we did a double close where i had the buyer wired to her and then she wired to the title company that was actually closed so it looked like it was from me so i could actually close on this thing we could make thirty seven hundred dollars this Which podcast is a fortune to me. And this this podcast this, is for in, informational purposes and entertainment yeah. only, and none of this Never actually this. occurred. Yeah. So we're just having fun I didn't here. Break the law. Title person. An unnamed title person from an well, unnamed title name. company. I'll never name. There will be no names. Yeah, you will not torture that information out of me. So I, I will not give it up. Uh, that's when my best friend came back into town to see what I was doing, right? In the meantime, while I'm waiting for this deal to close, I end up. Like, we need a place to live. I'm getting broken in this hotel with four fucking cats and my wife. We need to move somewhere. So I, I get this sub two deal on the east side of Detroit where it's takeover payments, right? And I move my wife into this, uh, and we only made it nine months there. That's how bad it was. So anyway, we're sitting at the closing for this double closing, and the closer comes in and is like, this is after we've sent the paperwork. The buyer signed the paperwork. He's wired to money. He thinks, I'm signing now, but I'm actually closing with this company. And the title lady comes in. It's on Orchard Lake. And she goes, 
I don't think we're going to close today. Uh, title's messed up. And I'm sitting in there with what the title person to me? who's now shitting their pants and my best friend who's like, what the fuck are you going to do? And I just went all in at that point. I go, lady, if it doesn't close today, it's never going to close. <laughs> and she looked at me and she goes, let me go see what I can do. We sat in that room uncomfortably for an hour and 45 minutes. Oh, it's like waiting for a birth. Oh, my God. It's like, how fucked up are we? What, what, what are we going to say if this doesn't come back? All that. I don't know how they did it. Miraculously. They, oh, we fixed it. We're good. Here we go. Sign here. Wham, bam. Thank you, ma'am. My first deal back in the game, August 2007. Boom. From cold calling off a REI club and calling all these other RIAs. One of the few benefits I actually got out of a RIA, cold calling them and selling them some shit. Ironically, this guy had to declare bankruptcy a year plus later and called me, and I got the wholesale of the property a second time. Uh, Made more money the second time. We can go back that's and look great. It up. There you go. I got to sell that motherfucker twice. <laughs> I got a few of those houses. But that was, you sell enough houses, you do sometimes get to sell them twice. Oh, yeah. At oh, least yeah. in Detroit. <laughs> I'm on one, and I'm on my third Probably run through now. Right? <laughs> no, you'd be surprised. You get get that opportunity. I got I got one about to go up. It's my third time through with this one. So, <laughs> so that, that the was, price keeps going up every time too. It's awesome. <laughs> we threw a party. We invited everybody over. Um, turn our electricity back on. <laughs> <laughs> they fucking cut you at the pole, even if you try to go. So, turn our electricity back on. We had a party. We threw out some food. It was something besides ramen, eggs, tuna, and fried potatoes and hummus, which I was getting pretty fucking tired of. Yeah. We had gas for the car, so we didn't have to walk to the coffee shop a mile and a half away in Gross Point anymore to plug in all our shit and charge. That was like just enough money. To get your life back in you. So, yeah, welcome to fucking Detroit, just as things are falling apart. I know everywhere else it fell apart in 2008 and 2009, but in Detroit. It was early. It was early. It was July 2007, because I remember I had flips everywhere worth 120. They were then worth 80 and then 40. And then by December of 2007, they were worth 10. Yep. And I didn't have a business plan that could survive that all my money was around Credit card money, hard money, mm-hmm. private money, and everybody I sold to bought with financing or refi it out. Yep. So once that option was gone, let me tell you, folks, you need multiple exit, exit strategies. strategies. <laughs> yep. So this is another mistake I had to learn the hard way. One shitty exit strategy is not a good way. So I was literally stuck. Nothing you could do. Mm-hmm. The good thing about it was it was fast. It's like getting your ass beat and it's done. So you get your ass beat for a couple of months, you're broke, and you can just get back to work, and you don't even have time to feel sorry for yourself, right? Mm-hmm. It's more like like a car accident. It's just over. That's the good Boom. thing about being anchored in pain and constantly going back to the hustle, right? Yeah. Like, if I just work, I'll just work. I'll just, I'll just work. work. 24 hours a day. It was actually my religion. Yeah. My religion was I can fix anything and do anything through hard work, which, yep. by the way, is not true. <laughs> Almost anything you can make mistakes so big and there can be problems so bad you have to quit and start over i didn't realize that this at that time but that was my religion i'll just work all you motherfuckers to death mm-hmm. so we end up partnering i'm not going to say his name i don't want to say it on the podcast with another individual who appeared more proficient more proficient than he was. He had a secretary. He did more deals. He had more systems in place than I did. Mm-hmm. I didn't know dick about business, 
right? I don't even know a dick about real estate. I'm just showing up doing shit, right? Eh, probably worth this, probably worth that. It's all working, right, in the old economy. So anyway, I start moving uh, forward with him. We start Urban Detroit Wholesalers in November of 2007 at the Big B that used to be on Mac Avenue on the east side of Detroit. I remember we're still good friends with them. That one got shut down, but they opened another restaurant in Gross Point. I had a friend who I convinced to lend us $50,000. So Urban Detroit Wholesaler starts in November of 2007. We do our first deal in 2008 with this $50,000. And this begins an epic run of shit that I'm embarrassed to talk about, but also is kind of fucking cool, right? All we had was 50 grand. By this point, though, there were something like 3,500 houses on the MLS, all REO, right? We had 50 grand. Here's our plan. We're going to go out. We're going to write 100 offers a week. We're going to get somebody to do this. Anyone that gets accepted, we're going to go out and look at it. And then we're going to pick the best. And we're going to actually close on those ones. Even though I'd done one assignment before, I didn't know about assignments. Not that I would have been able to do it with a bank anyway, but it was still very straightforward. I have the cash, buy it, and thank God I did it right from day one. We just didn't take the cash. This is probably why I'm not in jail when you fast forward. I never fucking touched the money. There was a mortgage. It went to the title company. The title company distributed based upon the private lender actually had to sign off on every distribution and all that. So I had that part very professional, always at title companies. Money never touched my hand. And we go on an epic run, right? So my life becomes houses all day, every day, right? We're just looking at houses, as many as you can fucking look at on the offers you get accepted. And these and are all REO? All REO. Amazing. Houses. So is it just all Ron Wallraven? Almost no work. <laughs> He's one of many. I'm right? sure, yeah. He's one of many. I don't even know if he remembers me from back then or not. We did some deals together. I think he does. He probably does because I fucked some shit up at the end. But anyway, I was so aggressive that year. I'm surprised I didn't fucking kill my wife with how aggressive I was. We worked at $50,000 so many times. There were several times I couldn't even wait for the title company to wire me the money from the one I was selling to the one I needed to buy, right? Because here was Jeremy's planning back then. This is my idea. Put them all under contract. Oh, here's all the best deals. Oh, shit. Now we're buying them. I guess I better go fucking sell these things, right? Oh, we got another deal. I don't have any money. Well, I guess I better go sell these things so I can go buy this one, right? This was literally my fucking business plan. This is not a business plan, folks. I'm joking, right? But this was Jeremy's business plan. Yeah, you didn't even write it down. No. You didn't even write that much not down. Not even on a whiteboard. Yeah. Like, why are we talking about so much? I should be dialing already, right? Man of action. Very, you know, let's not think about this. We wasted time thinking about it. We could have been working. I think I've still I sold two I, properties. I, I still now. see you do that now sometimes. Sometimes. <laughs> I get, get a little excited, so. But drinks a lot of coffee. It was the perfect time for this kind of permissive environment. Everybody was so desperate to sell houses and close deals. I missed one closing by 10 days, and they still took the money. Mm. 10 days I missed. I, well, there was nowhere else I to go back then. I made every day. I don't know why you don't have it. I gave him a fake tracking number, all that. Finally would fucking sell it, then send the money. Go. This was all of 2008, just like a maniac putting this together. Not rehabbing anything yet, though. So we're just doing sort of like 
We're trying to pick the best ones that need the least amount of rehab that would appeal the most to out-of-state and out-of-country investors. And then my partner, if you want to know how this podcast started and how Renegade Detroit Investors started, my partner said we should start a blog. I'm like, what the fuck we need to write on the internet for? Like famous last <laughs> words, right? Like that's gay shit, right? Like we're not going to sell any. What we need to be doing is banging the phones and selling shit and not typing shit up on the internet, right? Well, for Wall Street. Fortunately, <laughs> we did what he wanted to do. Because of this blog, people were fascinated with the fact that my wife and I would move to Detroit to do this. And I started getting calls, right? And the first one was from the Detroit Free Press. Greta Guest. And she wanted to know what we were doing and how we were doing it. I'm like, what the fuck? Okay. So I'm like, I'm selling hard. That was like like driving around Detroit shelling diamonds in the back of the truck. Right? We do all that. We're supposed to be in the real estate section of the paper buried somewhere that nobody ever reads, right? Like somewhere on page 37 of the newspaper, right? In the meantime, we figured out another way to sell these houses were to go to all these shitty EWI conferences that we paid for. And then in the halls, I'd hawk and sell Detroit properties to the people, right? So we would spend a couple thousand dollars on airfare and all that, but then we go sell $20,000 of real estate. So this became the grind, right? So you mm-hmm. fly, conference, sell, like real. Basically school. going to the buyer's list in real face time. Face-to-face, old yeah. school, handshaking. We're selling that way. Right, and we get off the plane. I turn on my BlackBerry. That's how fucking old it is, right? Turn on my BlackBerry, and my phone blows up. Dude, you're on the front page of Detroit Free Press. This is literally what blew us up, right? Like I'm grinding, grinding, cold calling, just reaching out to everybody, emailing everybody, you know, adding the whole list, trying to do the LinkedIn thing, trying to figure out the MySpace internet thing, and we end up on the front page of the Detroit Free Press. Mm-hmm. You can still go look it up. I saved some of the paper. Phone blew up. My buyers list went from 450 people to 6,000 in one year. Man. From that front page, Detroit Free Press, I then ended up on CNN, the Campbell Brown Show, NPR, Money Magazine. It's like once you kind of get into it. Once uh, they got somebody, it's you're the show boy for a while. Free Press, that changed my life forever. It was no longer outbound calls. It was all inbound. I'm like, content fucking works. I'm all about outbound too, but if you can put breadcrumb trails, even on accident, to you, Right. And now you're calling people who have already raised their hand and said you're interested. It becomes a lot less of a grind. You're not doing it cold. So that was. Credibility is there. You're not even doing the uh, the sales anymore. Now you're just it showing changed up. changed completely. And that's when we really started um, selling some shit. Unfortunately, um, part of one of the reasons why we were made fun of and not treated well when we got here, besides the fact that we were investing in Detroit was I had some bad ideas about how I was going to help Detroit. We partnered with, uh, I'm not going to say the name, but we partnered with a few nonprofits. And here was the idea. We had a fucking amazing money printing machine going, right? So through our partners and our investments and all that, we had a program with a Mishta prisoner reentry program, right? Where they would actually pay us, they would actually fucking pay us to train these guys coming out of jail, right? They would pay us pay us to train them. You needed houses to train them on, right? 
So I would go buy all these REOs. We would use these MISHD prisoner reentry program where we're actually making a profit training them mm-hmm. how to do stuff, get subsidized labor, cut our costs in half, return that money back to the other said nonprofit, right? And then we would turn it, I put a renter in them and sell them turnkey to investors out of state and overseas. So this was. Oh, yeah. So this was how I started making money this way. We're going to take a pause for him to come back. Hold on, people. All right, fuck shit, we're back. I think uh, we were talking about the Mishta program. So anyway, hopefully I'm right. If not, sorry. So we were getting paid by the Mishta re- uh, prisoner reentry program to train them, making, making money training them, good money training them, worth doing it just for itself, and then subsidizing the nonprofit through private investment to reduce our costs further and make us more competitive. And then we had a first-time homebuyer component to the program with an additional nonprofit where we were bringing them in, going through all that stuff to getting them down payment assistance, working through the city of Detroit, state of Michigan, every program you can get through. There's things they have to do. There's courses they have to Mm -hmm. complete, right? And they actually had – so we have – People getting qualified. We have people we're getting paid to train to work on our houses with subsidized labor, and we're buying houses at the cheapest prices ever at REO, and we're selling them. Now, are you land contracting them, or no, are you just getting regular first, financing? First time home buyers, we're just closing them. Mm-hmm. They're all FHA, of course. Right? This is before Dodd Frank, anyway, so that was a this works thing, until yeah. like towards the end of two thousand eight, right? Once two thousand nine comes, that's really when the mortgage is like ground to a halt. Right? Mm-hmm. It started getting hard the second half of two two thousand and eight, but you can still get a lot of them done, and because our costs were so low. Not we could make a shit ton of money even doing this. Your like margins are still in 50%, there. Fifty percent. Yeah. Fifty percent. This is why I lose my shit when I talk oh, about this. Jesus, thing. Mary Joseph. Now, it wasn't like it was easy. We were working our fucking faces off. We're talking twenty hours a day, looking at hundreds of properties, managing rehabs, managing training, managing like it is just we're working ourselves, but it's working. Right, legitimately working, doing well, and then of course the tap for mortgages get turned off. Right, Bam. that was after the Bear Stearns scenario. Crash, yep. yeah, we just get smashed. But it wasn't that bad for us because we just immediately pivoted and we went turnkey instead, Section Eight. Right, so it's a different market, but we were doing some of this anyway already with these overseas investors and after all this stuff anyway. So we just lost one component of our profit. We'll just go double down on this turnkey shit we're doing. Right. Now, was that a strategy session? You sat down, planned it out, figured out what your options were. No. Or was it just organic? You're no. like, screw it. We're still doing this. Mortgages are too hard. We quit before they stopped doing them. Uh, but we went longer than we should have. Okay. Right? Cause you get invested in the process. You have sunk costs. You, we went. We fought like three months through that more than we really should have. So this wasn't a, a intentional business. Like you, you weren't thinking about no. data. You weren't thinking. What about, are we doing with all these beautiful houses? Yeah. Now we gotta sell them. We can't sell them to these first time home buyers. Nobody can get a fucking mortgage, right? What am I gonna do with them? Yeah. We're it was rent speed. Them out. Yeah. You were you were doing tennis. You were playing tennis. Every ball comes in, hit it back. And this is where I had an idea. I was like, instead of this shitty model. Because I had these beautifully rehabbed houses, right? These weren't rental houses. Yeah. 
I had houses over rehab for the rental market because we updated everything, windows, roof. Yeah. There wasn't an old thing in them that was dangerous or bad. Everything was updated, including electrical, if it was old. We wanted to give these people great houses. We sold them on warranties with them. So putting in a Section 8 renter and then going and trying to hawk the thing for $35,000, when that's about what we have into it, even discounted, that's so like what if it's a premium model, right? What if we do 55000 and you're not just getting a rental. you got a brand new house and passive income. Just out of necessity, because we have too much fucking money in these houses, right? We got to get something out of them. Like selling the CapEx idea. You got no CapEx coming. This is actually the best thing I ever did because I got to dramatically reduce how many houses I was selling and rehabbing, right? Because now I just dramatically increase my profit margin. So the volume could go down and you're still pulling the same. drop significantly lower, solve so many of my problems, Um, except for property management, right? This is a constant problem in Detroit and something I never fully solved. I tortured myself on this shit. We never had anybody we liked. We were with uh, I'm going to say their names. I fucking hate their guts. Uh, I was with Garner Properties forever back when Larry and Larry was a bad motherfucker. Okay. I'm never going to say anything bad about Larry. This is one of the guys who would just call my wife and up and take us out to lunch and help us. He was a solid investor. He's a multi-millionaire. I remember calling Larry. I thought I was going to leave a voicemail this old bastard. He's 77. I called 6.30 in the fucking morning. He picks up on the second ring. Garner Properties. He's been up for two hours. I'm what like, Larry, what the fuck are you doing at work? He's like, oh, I'd like to get an early start over here. This is a multi-millionaire. Anyway, he That's did why. finally retire. <laughs> That's why he's a multi-millionaire. And let's just say after he retired, things went downhill. So I was constantly in search of a property management company, and I could never solve this problem and no matter how much work you put in or realize that you're not the property manager there's somebody else the person from overseas and the group they're with it's still you yeah so it's not like you can just say well that's property management that's detroit it's I'm on you burning all these relationships yeah. right so yeah now i'm making a shit ton more money per property but now my management doubled these things like i am hand-holding motherfuckers yeah. this is just not sustainable And that's when we thought about land contracts. So we tested them. I fucked some land contracts up. turns out $2,000 down is not enough money. (laughs) Not so much. Unless it's a $10,000 house. If you're curious about where the number is, I tested extensively $5,000 or above or don't fucking do it because that was very painful. I had a few expensive lessons there. Testing this model. Right, and figuring out how to correctly underwrite these people to alleviate difficulties in managing for Section 8 is can we get them invested enough in the home that it's not a landlord tenant relationship? Is it it's a mortgage relationship, right? So we're giving them a beautiful house, everything new. We tell them we're marking up the price. And the reason why we're marking up the price is we're giving you the financing. Nobody will give loans now anyway. This is the only way you can do it. There's no prepayment penalty. You can pay us off at any time. We'll keep your interest rate, everything, cheaper than renting, which is still a fortune, right? And um, the way we set it up is our investors got kickers on the back end, right? So they got the cash flow. They got a kicker on the back end. We got a kicker on the back end for managing it. 
this actually works. And what would that number look like? So they would be buying in for 55, same price, right? We'd be selling them 85 to 95, right? No prepayment penalty anytime you wanted to pay it off. A lot of these work. Some of them are still closing, right? Like I still get calls and shit. I need to sign to clear these things so people can go do these things. So I actually like this part. This is probably the most successful thing we did. And we were really putting in good homeowners into nice houses and, and doing these things. So we kept their payments low and everything. The investor would get all the cash flow. We would get a small kicker on the back and when it sold. And that's where they made most of their money. So they were going to get a nicer house with less management. And then I could just have somebody service payments, essentially. So you're not a property management more. You're not fixing anything more. It's your house, your problems. We're not fixing shit. You got to have insurance. You got to have us as additional insured, right? And what I did is I put all these people together and that fucking worked great until um, Dot Frank. Yeah. We looked into all the licensing, but for Detroit, it's too expensive to do. You just can't make money selling on land contracts, even if it wasn't for all the other uh, onerous stuff from the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, right? Even without that, when you just look at what it costs and all the regulation and what it costs to do that, it no longer became profitable to do, right? We didn't think investors would pay 15 grand more for a property that just 55 was definitely at the time the very top. I knew very few people getting this much. And this is before all the hacks came in and started flooding the market with all the fake shit too. So now what are we going to do? Um, we're back to section eight and non-section eight. And in what year is this now we're talking? Now we're heading in 2010. 2000. Okay. Yeah. We're in in 2010. And this is when I start noticing a lot of irregularities um, in I don't the bookkeeping. To, not not bookkeeping. I was never a great bookkeeper. Thankfully, I use title companies, and my wife is good at that shit. Um, it's not that I. It's, it's not that I even care. It's just I'm terrible at it. Yeah, uh, I'm not that interested. Um, catching people in lies. So you start to piece them, and things start going more wrong. Right. They come in and start investigating um, fraud for the. You say they? Who are you talking about? The state. Okay. The state of Michigan comes in and starts investigating for fraud for the Michigan uh, for the contract that we had through the nonprofit for the Michigan reentry program. Right. That gets shut down. Um, Obviously, when you can no longer do mortgages, the other nonprofit that was doing the first time home buyer, we started working out cuts with them. So we can take these educated people and sell them on land contracts. Um, turns out they turned that into a scam too, where they were paying people to show up with good credit to come buy these houses. And then they told them they were doing that. Like the whole thing becomes a scam, right? And I start to, I started to figure it out. So we immediately distance ourselves. And caught. Now, this is from the partners that you're working from with. The partners, from everybody. Gina and I, I shit can the one partner who runs away and hides like a scared dog anyway, never to be seen or heard from again, right? Screwed out of town. So it sounds like you were on the front end dealing with the acquisition of property and playing that never side of the game. Never get a partner who thinks eight hours a day is work. Mm-hmm. Fuck you. You know, that was a mistake. That didn't make it very long. The level of resentment was impossible. And as soon as it got difficult, we just took over. 
I'm not, I'm not saying it's the nicest thing in the world, but it's what we did. We put a plan in place. I took the shit over. We, we kicked him out. We said, go your own way. Here's some money. Fuck off. Did right. he actually bought out then? He, he didn't have even, a choice. I he wasn't connected out, though. Yeah, he yeah. was bought out. But the reality is we pushed him out. Mm. Like no more. We're Get the go. fuck out. Yeah. You're not pulling your weight. We got real problems here. We need to fix this shit. We're spending our profit now. We're putting our money and this becomes the, the wrong way money program, right? This is where I now start to go try and fix this shit. As, as I dive into it, I'm making terrible choices, too. The thinking that got you there is not the thinking that gets you out. So I, yep. I, I hire the wrong lawyer with the wrong thinking from before, and I get uh, bad legal advice. I don't share information with friends and private lenders and investors that I should share and disclose. Because I think I know the solution because I hired a crook who lied to me. You know, like I pretend to know things I don't know that I'm certain with and I do it because I'm spending so much more time. The lie is just convenient in my head. Right. I don't even realize what I don't know. And that's when the lawsuits happened. So were you blindsided? Was it out of left field? Like you, you knew something was weird. You didn't know that. Yeah. So how this, particular, how this particular lawsuit started was my ex-partner was supposed to be managing this particular investment. Was this the one that got booted that yeah. you bought out? How we manage the private money was the private money I bring in. It's our private money, and we get to spend it. But you take care of paying it back because these are personal relationships, right? I met this guy twice for five minutes. He's my partner's problem. Apparently, it's my problem, Right. Okay, fine. You're right. It is my problem. Everything is in Urban Trail Wholesaler's name. You are correct. I literally tell him what's going on. I have a knockdown drag out argument with my wife where I basically wipe our account almost to get this guy 12 grand. And a cashier's check where I go meet him where he wants and I bring him the paperwork he requested. Um, I apologize. I hand him the money. He walks out. We get served. That's when I realized there are people who don't care about money either, right? I don't know what my ex-partner did. It certainly wasn't anything I did. And over $50,000, of which I gave twelve back right there. So not a large sum of money, something that could easily have been settled if given the opportunity. And this is when uh, you can learn that the court systems can be used against you. And the judges and the lawyers don't care, and they can milk you for. You're getting paid out of it. Yeah, and I made some terrible choices on my first three lawyers. It wasn't until my fourth lawyer, but I finally got my thinking right, and I hired the right person. Um, How'd you do that? Well, Jeff Rabinowitz actually challenged me. We had a really tough conversation where I was playing a little bit. Uh, Woe is me, right? And he said, "No, you did this. You're part of it. Sure, you didn't have the intent, but." You should have told me this. You didn't. You should have done that. You didn't, right? He has his own story. He wants to tell it really, really bad. Eventually, we will we will get to that point. That might be actually. the 101st episode. Uh, no, it might be the 101st <laughs> episode. might be the 200th episode. <laughs> Maybe a little bit longer. We'll see. Um, but anyway, I had to go back and do a little thinking and soul searching on that. And I, I was pissed for a while, but I called him back after some amount of time and told him he was correct. And that was kind of like the beginning of 
like really getting shit right. Like reality is reality. Evidence. It, it sounds like that was basically your uh, your rehab, your real estate rehab. The same way you did in the military. Yeah. Came out, you're like, all right, this is the this is the truth. Lay it on the table. This is it. it sounds like that's the same. I, this is what I did. It, remove intent, right? Remove intent from what you're talking about, and just look what happens, right? And you have to accept responsibility for your part in it. Yeah, it's right? part of the ownership game. It just is, right? Now, sure, was that the intent? No, and I do think that's important, right? But to say I didn't, or to say that I wasn't a part, or that I wasn't responsible, is a lie. I was. I did. I am. Once I got that, that that made it that made it a lot easier. It takes some ownership in at least, then you can do something. I can from see that. how I can come back. Before I wasn't, you know, I wasn't entirely sure, a hundred percent, what I'd done wrong. Um, some of it was just that when you come from that background and you're that poor, it's like a struggle up with your friends, right? And you're that loyalty thing. Yeah, oh, I know that. Yeah, uh, this is where I had to learn: you can't be loyal to people; you have to be loyal to values. Mm-hmm. And so long as the people maintain those values, my loyalty is: I'll I'll fuck you up to the ends of this earth. Right. Um, so long as those values are, but I didn't have that. I was, val- I, I was loyal to the wrong people. And the reason why I was, is I hadn't dealt with my past with my parents and shit like that. I had to realize that that betrayal was this betrayal. And if, the, if one's true with one person, it's true universally. Right. And I had to accept that. And that was the, 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 the beginning of a, of accepting a complete responsibility for my life, regardless of what had happened to me or what I had done to myself. Right? It's like this is my life. This is my life. I'm responsible for it. So I didn't say this. Right? This wasn't something I thought. It was like a, a it's an internal landscape change. About six months. Right. So and, and and starts and fits right, and I lost some ground a few times too. So it wasn't like it just happened or I had. An you fight back and you're like, screw this! I didn't do nothing, and you go backwards. So it was I've like done it, it. it, it unfolded over about um, six months. But the good thing is, once I got it, I got it. Like now, I get it, and I, it, it's something that can't be taken away. There's a lot of freedom in that. It's just done. Yeah, it is what it. it you can't put that cat back in the bag and pretend you can't after that. It either. Yeah, so once it's a I permanent got there, thing. Like it was a struggle. Yeah, it's very proactive. Mic drop. And then boom, I got it. And that's when life became at least. Now I can start recognizing problems in myself, my marriage, my business, my life. I can start admitting things I'm bad at. I can start. You know, having the conversation of maybe I don't know how to run a business, considering I kind of ran two into the ground, right? Like, how do you run a business? Turns out I'm good at the numbers and I'm good at the hustle and I'm good at finding the deals, but I really don't know how to budget for a business, manage for a business. Yeah. Okay, what do I got to learn how to do that? All right, well, how do I repair all these relationships where I just torched millions of dollars, right? For a year and a half, all I got was fuck you phone calls. You know, it's like, okay, well, how do I, how do you manage? Well, you you tell people you're wrong when you're sorry and you start to pay people back. Right. And you get, so this was literally like the beginning of all that, which is how, um, I ended up working with Steve Londo because I was like, man, I, I've got this 
at least enough parts of this real estate game down. I know I can do that part, but I need to learn how to run a business. I don't know how to run a business. So I'm like, I'm going to do the apprenticeship model. And I had to do wholesaling because I didn't have any fucking money. I didn't even have a car and I'm about to lose my house to fucking tax foreclosure and no health insurance, nothing. I'm on fucking food stamps and I'm having to go to churches to get food and I'm growing food in my yard. So I'm like, situation is desperate. The lawyer's got everything. Everything's wiped out. There's not a goddamn thing left. This is, this is, we're talking major litigation. We're talking about Power FBI cover. and we're talking FBI about major showed up shit. My house, Prison sentences deaths. for people. Mul- my, one of my partners, uh, well, he got two and a half years. I don't know how much he actually did. Right? Yeah. Um, turns out the feds never prosecute. It was the state of Michigan and Wayne County. I don't know if, I guess the feds didn't want to waste the money or they thought the state and the county. Probably wasn't enough, enough meat there to climb yeah. into to make I, it I worth it. I don't know what the. Yeah, what charges are, are they chasing? I mean, uh, fraud, wire fraud, um, deed fraud, a whole bunch of. Uh, Crimes of moral turpitude. Yeah, the financial ones with all the long names. That you're like, I'm yeah. not even entirely sure what they mean. The conversion. I don't know. What did they do? They faked rehabs that they didn't do. They pretended to put roofs on houses they didn't do. They paid people with good credit to come sign for these land contracts and homes. They pretended to make payments on these Section 8 ones where they weren't making payments. And at the very, very end, they started just forging deeds for properties and selling them to my properties. It's a, it's a slippery slope. Once you start doing dirty shit, everything yeah. doesn't seem so dirty. And we got tied up. And, and, and I was talking to Heather about it when you were on your break. A lot of this, like I found out some of it just through catching them. Mm-hmm. A lot of it I found out You know, once you have to hire a criminal attorney and you say, I'm, I'm exercising my Fifth Amendment right based upon my whatever – Anyway, I did make some deals for immunity where I offered evidence. They, they ended up not using it, right? But when they're getting information out of you, one thing law enforcement does is they put the other information in front of you. So I found out the deed fraud. This is like a year and a half, two years after it all goes down. I'm doing. I'm sitting down giving a deposition, and I'm agreeing to do all this. I have my criminal attorney there, and he's like, is that your signature on that deed? And you look at it, you recognize the address, and you're like, he was forging my signature and selling my properties. And like, yeah, he was forging deeds and selling them to overseas investors, some Indian guy around you with with the last name Singh or something. Some of my, so I'm finding out like the level of betrayal and how deep the rotten core goes. A lot of it actually from law enforcement, you know, including some emails and stuff that were just. Bold-faced lies. And you realize at that point that you were the sucker. Mm-hmm. They were taking you. You were the mark. That is the business model. The business model is we bring in outsiders who have money and work, and we pretend that we're this struggling organization. And actually, our business model is to defraud you for money and go... Hold you up as the meat shield to take all the bullets. Right. And this one particular guy went even further with wire fraud. Just that title companies got pulled down over this. It was millions of dollars in real estate. It ruined, you know, my personal relationship. Some people never come back. You have to live with that. Put strain on it. My marriage. Not just me. Other people's lives. Contractors. Um. Investors overseas, out of state, it, you know, 
in Detroit terms, it's a lot of money. I know in California it's not, but it was like three and a half million dollars worth of Detroit real estate. Mm. Just uh, to put that in perspective, I mean, how many houses are you talking? Well over a hundred. So I mean, that's the yeah. that's the the prices here. When you bring up California, we have people listening from California. Yeah. So that's the perspective you need to have. What we're talking number wise. Yeah, that was that was uh, good times. Good times. It sounds great. The best part was the wrong, the first three wrong attorneys. I can't tell you how embarrassed I was each time to go back to my partners with one more thing I'd fucked up, but that's kind of how it went for a while. <laughs> <laughs> like, I did not plan this. Be like, you know how I'm doing better and all that? It's like, no. I'm like, here, I fucked this up, right? Fortunately, the last lawyer fixed a lot of shit. Like, I finally got like, okay, and I can go back to, I'll say Jeff, because he was. I'm like, Jeff, I... We got the right guy this time. It turned out not to matter that much just because by that time, like over three years had passed and most of the properties got wiped with the Wayne County tax auction. So nobody actually really got to sell or dispose of most of the property, which was completely ironic considering the point of the lawsuit was supposed to be able to civilly recover monies owed and then nobody gets paid anything except for the courts and the lawyers and then they all go to the tax auction. It's like, so wait, I owe all the money. I never got the opportunity to sell the houses. You actually never sold the houses. And they all went to the tax, and I still owe them. Like, fuck. <laughs> no win situation. Man, that's like lose, lose, lose. Especially if the only way out is to do what you fucking said you're going to do anyway and start paying people back. So I was like, well, what's one more loss, right? Put it on the pile. It's like, fuck, man. That was choking that one down. That was like the last little one. Like, I. Is it as bad as moving back to Tacoma? Worse. 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 Worse than going back to Boise. Actually, the worst moment was the FBI showing up at my house and my father in law, who I hate his fucking guts, was there. So not only did I have to be humiliated in front of my wife, it had to be in front of my father in law. That's brutal. This. Little worm. Big. Big fucking hook. Yeah. Fuck. It was just like you think, too. You come out, there's a a black Lincoln parked in front of your house. Guy in sunglasses. That's not good. And then they see you with your dogs, and they get out, and it's two white guys in black suits. And you're like, all right, that's probably not good either. Either aliens just crashed or I'm about to get fucked. (laughs) I think I know where this is going. (laughs) I better go say hi. Hey, Mr. Burgess, we'd like to have a word with you. They hand over business cards, and it's FBI. And I say the only words I've ever said to him: I would love to cooperate, but I'm going to have to put you in contact with my attorney. Which I didn't even have a criminal attorney then. I just had a civil attorney. So I was like, <laughs> still counts. Buy in time. I'm not talking to you. They never came back. I never talked to them. You lured up immediately. Yeah. reached out, and they said, no, they don't want anything. So, But, yeah, that, that was really, like, my, like, where I felt the littlest – Moments like really of all the fucking times for the FBI to show up at my house of all the times one last and like my father-in-law who I hate and I despise is here to witness it. You have a smug look on his face yeah, the whole yeah, time oh, and he yeah. just looked at Gina. He going nowhere and every, you know, like, oh my God. I was like, I'll just go crawl in a hole and die. <laughs> it's like being a child the first time you learn humility. You feel that creepy little it's a whole new level. sensation Jesus. in the back of your neck go just down like, your spine. You usually don't feel it again as an adult. Good thing is, good wait, you're not supposed to keep feeling that? Oh. Well, I, I don't feel it anymore. Now I know. Like, I got it now. <laughs> it's, that's never going to happen again. But at the time, like, 
okay, that's that's what that feels like. Yeah, that's a rock bottom. That was yeah. That was feeling that you and your wife have an incredibly strong bond at this point. You guys are probably going to be all right. (laughs) I hope so. I hope so. We still struggle a lot, frankly. Like that's one thing I want to talk about too. A lot of this shit's traumatic. When you murder your financial life Mm -hmm. twice, that Mm -hmm. comes together. One hundred percent, including reputationally, right? So it's not just money. It's money and you're bad people and you fucked people over. Like that was like, and then everybody who you thought was your friend actually wasn't your friend. You were the mark. They were using you. And you were being used the whole time. It's like a macro version of losing your job in a small town and no one else hires you. Except now you're in a major metropolitan market. You can't do anything. on me than it was on my wife. Yeah. I didn't answer the phone though for like a year and a half. I just gave up, right? There was only so many times like... Now I get it. You were legitimately mad. I agree with you. But what do you think doing that actually accomplishes? Especially when I admitted fault. I spent all my money to fix shit until I didn't. And then I gave the lawyers the rest of the money, which was a waste of money. I should have just disappeared. But uh, I get it. I, I, I victimized you. Not was, legal advice. I was part of why you're fucked up right now, too. <clears throat> I'm also right there with you, and I'm probably fucking worse. So that's the thing. That's that that part didn't get get across. But anyway, yeah, that was a lot of fun. Good times. So that's. I mean, that was the rock bottom of that. A major venture that collapsed. That's where it it, it ended at the. Well, I mean, it didn't end, but that's where it crested. I got arrested at a Renegade Detroit investor meeting. Did a Peking house? No, that was in Silas. Before that, in Berkeley. Yeah, really. So the same guy who sued me. Um, I, I thought I went to all the Silas. I missed. I missed lawyers. one that good. The third lawyer got fired because he missed a court date. By the way, I paid him to go to with fucking the, the scraps I managed to pull together as we garbage, right? Yeah, you're gonna uh, need to do a whole other episode on how to pick an attorney. He missed. Uh, <laughs> he missed the court date and. Judges hate that, right? Oh, yeah. But they're not, they, they don't send anybody to get you, right? They just, okay, they put a warrant out for your arrest. The next time you pulled over, they take you to jail and they go, hey, next time I tell you to be here, be here, right? Well, this guy actually paid to have the Wayne County Sheriff's come and arrest me at the meeting, even though he knew where I lived, all that other stuff. So, and trying to maximize damage. Is that, you're going to love this. This is actually one of my favorite moments in my life. And if you're listening, thank you, sir. I really appreciate it. I don't think you realize what a favor you did to me. And I know you don't see it that way, but thank you. So I get arrested in front of – back then it was only like 35 people. Nobody came, right? So I, that. Come. I just lost all my fucking money and ruined all my friends and family's lives, and I'm disgracing everybody. Shame, 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 right? What a moron. And that's when I met you. Yeah. And uh, – as I big walked Tommy's out, like you're my kind of people right yeah. here. Yeah. As I walk out in handcuffs, <laughs> I see this individual with his attorney, and he has a pizza on the front of his car, and he smiles and waves at me, and he's, he's eating a piece of pizza. Mm. And I thought to myself, never again, never again will I ever feel sorry for myself. Or be in this situation again. Thank you, sir. I and fuck it. you. <laughs> I don't care what you say or do to me now. Do your worst, motherfuckers. Mm. Do your worst. I don't care. That, I went and spent 27 hours in Wayne County Jail, which, by the way, 
for, yeah, I kind of grew up rough, but not that kind of fucking rough. I fortunately missed out on most of the criminal elements. So not different kind of rough life. And I ended up in Wayne County Jail, which, by the way, they're openly planning their next drug deal. Which I'm like, who the fuck does that in prison? Nobody seemed to care either, including everybody working there. I'm like, this is a strange place. <laughs> Which my strategy was to fucking say nothing and do whatever they tell you, right? And that's exactly what I did for the 27 hours. Until one of my best friends in the whole world drove down in the middle of the night. Oh, so actually I didn't get out of Wayne County because when they let me out of Wayne County, they didn't tell me. Apparently I had a ticket in Romulus still. So Romulus came and picked me up and took me to their jail and then shook me down for 350 bucks I didn't have that I had to borrow from my friend. But Sean Friend. This was cleaner. Sean Friend from GrassBandits.com, who's the baddest, best motherfucker on this planet, whom I love. He's got 400 accounts. If you have a house in Livonia, GrassBandits.com, hire him. He's a good man. Him and his wife and his two kids came out and bailed me out of jail. So this happened because my wife was also in Seattle at the time. So I had nobody to come bail me out of jail. So, yeah, love you. So I, I don't know if that was a low moment, but that was definitely a moment where I said, fuck you, fuck this, fuck everybody else. I don't care what you say or do. I'm just going to go do my thing. Fuck you all. And that's still how I feel today. Mm. Well, uh, that's a good story to get to that point. Jesus. Yeah. Once you got it, you got it. And that, that was the best thing that happened out of it, which is why I'm incredibly thankful for that experience. It's a phrase that you them. said, you can't be loyal to people, only loyal to values. Yes. That uh, – is that, is, that, is that someone else? Is that just something you figured out? No, I learned – well, philosophy. So when I was – so we got to go back, right? If you can't tell, I'm a slightly motivated individual. I don't know if it was because I was born or how I was raised or how poor I was. I'm also incredibly competitive and goal-oriented and I can focus on something for pretty much ever. ever right? <laughs> ever. I don't know how many burgers I've cooked at this point, but it's thousands. I don't know how many pounds of meat I smoked at this point, but it's thousands. And I'm not tired of it yet, and I'm not going to be tired of it. I'm going to die having wish I would have made even better burgers, even better smoked food. I'm just never satisfied ever. So this is just how I am. So whenever I go to do something, that's how I do it. So... When I realized that I was lying to myself, self-deception, right, coping mechanisms for all this terrible shit, PTSD, all this other stuff, I'm like, okay. I became obsessed and kind of paranoid, frankly. I was like, how do I know what I believe is really what I believe? Do I believe it because somebody told me what to believe? Or do you see how far you can go with this? I know. I went to Catholic school. I know all about it. <laughs> so I tore, I tore the motherfucker down. I tore. I'm like, I believe nothing. We're going to start at scratch. And I just started reading, 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 reading a lot of psychology books and started to piece together something that I considered reality, right? And especially as I understood myself, what I did, how I was so arrogant, how could I end up in that situation, my relationship with my parents, realized how much my wife and my sister needed help, started to help them. It's like it all came together. I was like, oh, shit. So I like year and a half, I just tore my life apart and I just started piecing it back together. And then I, after a year and a half, I got paranoid. I tore it back again. It's like I need to make sure I went deep enough. I don't know why I did that. Like I, I don't know if that was an obsessive part, but I went back and I did it again. 
one more time. But then I stopped. I was like, what the fuck are you doing? You're okay. So I, I don't, that's why I said I was a little paranoid. I kind of did it again, but I tore, tore down everything. Went back and read everything. What do I know about real estate? What do I know about finance? What do I know about philosophy? What do I know about life, God, science, anything? Sure, I went to school. What do I really know? What are my beliefs? What I really ended up with was one of my core beliefs that I had to break was I could fix anything if I worked hard enough. And that's just not true, which is how I wrecked that boat so hard the second time. I should have quit. Filed bankruptcy right then. That... It was dead. I, the, the, there was no amount of CPR going to bring that motherfucker back. You can make mistakes and problems you can't fix. And the only way to fix it is to go do something else, right? Mm-hmm. So I had to let go of that part of my religion, right? Then I had to let go of the religion of my story and who I was. No, I had a shit family. Ego is the enemy. Yeah, just And then why did I pretend to know things that I didn't know? Well, let's not do that anymore. You know, Who are you impressing? Know. Yeah. Well, I, I don't know. Why did I even think I know? You know what? I just don't know. But I'll find out. That's my base. I don't know. And I started piecing it back together. I read um, all the macroeconomic books. I read most of the philosophy books. Um, I went down and I hired a therapist who I started seeing twice a month. Um, fortunately she had like a sliding scale, right? So she, she did the first year for free with me and then, uh, we worked our way up to, I think now I'm at her full rate, $60 an hour. So I started getting help that way. And then I decided the best way for me to move forward, if I really wanted to be in business and real estate, I was going to have to learn how to be a businessman. And the best way for me to do that was to be somebody's apprentice, right? I'm a very kinetic guy. It's hard for me to slow down. I wanted to use some of my strengths while making money too. And I also knew that if I could make someone enough money, no doubt they would teach me everything they need to know. Right? I just need to make myself as valuable as possible and the world be opened in front of me. Right. So I start pitching this plan to my wife who is traumatized beyond belief and I get to no, 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 no. Right. And that's actually one of the hardest things I had to do was this was like a six month ongoing argument. I'm getting back in the real estate. What are we going to do? How am I going to get out of this hole? What, what am I going to go back to baking bread? You know, I'm going to go get a job. In two th- like, real estate fired. ruins you for everything else. Well, and I've been, at, I've been out of the work market with no work history now for like seven, eight years with what? No college? An indictment. I couldn't even go be an engineer. <laughs> at that point, it was like 12 years. Since I was yeah. even an engineer, I don't know how long it would take me to go back and get licensed and learn all that shit. So I'm like, I'm doing real estate. I'm going to wholesale because you don't need any money to wholesale. And it's not on title. So even though we have garnishments and judgments, I can still get paid because it's not a title thing. This is something I could do. It risks none of my investors' money. It hurts none of my existing relationships. It's a business I can go learn. The only thing you need is the hustle you have. No money, just contracts and go sell. Get back on the phones. So I put together a plan. I decide I'm going to do it even though my wife says no, which was terrible. It's about a year, at least a year and a half of just, I get it. I earned it. I had no trust. I had bankrupted us twice. Our dreams didn't happen. I humiliated her with her parents, with the FBI at the house. 
not the dream, right? This is not. This is not what I had sold, and now we are even lower than anybody in her family has ever been, right? Like, our grandfather pulled us out of this, and now you're right back into it. You're like, told you that guy was no good. I get it. I deserved it. But I still knew I was making the right decision. So I went and did it anyway. And I narrowed down the list of three people who were the biggest wholesalers at the time, and... Steve was one of those wholesalers. And I actually knew him. I had a little bit better relationship with him because he had come and spoke at RDI. Yeah, I met him at RDI. Back in like 2011. And I like Steve. And he was obviously very active selling a lot of fucking real estate, right? So, yeah, he's a hustle bastard. Yeah. I got a little Hi, Steve. sneak peek. Yeah. He's a badass, man. <laughs> yeah. He's a fucking badass. I got a little sneak peek. He had a three. He was just doing Detroit stuff. He didn't know dick about Detroit, right? He's doing all this suburb stuff. He's never going to do Detroit. He starts getting these leads for Detroit. So he has three properties he can't sell. I can sell them. I know who to sell them to. So and he shows me. Uh, he uses Zoho CRM. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And for someone who <laughs> I sold something like three hundred and fifty houses out of my email. I didn't even have a spreadsheet. I hate I didn't that have you a just CRM. said that. I just got a little triggered from that. <laughs> I literally felt my heart. I mean, like, all right, I get it. There's still spreadsheets, bro. Like, I mean, that's There's that's no, pretty easy. There's no that. projection, right? Like, what are you closing next month? Or where are we looking at in our business? Or how many leads or phone calls? So, no, you just work all the fucking time. You sell everything and everything will be all right. So he shows me Zoe on the back end. He's like, oh, yeah, so this is what I did last year. I closed 62 deals, and we averaged seven. And you can see we had these peak months, and it was 25 leads to one closing. And I'm just looking at Steve. I was like, sold, motherfucker. Right? I put my plan in place. I tell Steve I want $3,000 for selling these three houses. He comes to pay me the money, which I tell him cash. Because at this point, I came and fucking deposit a check in a bank account. That's how bad things were. I needed cash. He came to give me three grand. I gave him two grand back. I kept one grand. I said, Steve, it was easier than I thought it was going to be. You should keep that. But I would like to come work for you. Think about it. I don't know anything about wholesaling, but I would love to learn. But I know everything you need to know about Detroit. And I'll do... I got to stop for one second because one of the things that in a lot of these meetups that you and groups on Facebook or whatever you hear a lot is people looking for mentorship and give that up when, well, when they show up, they're like, Hey, I don't know anything. I don't, you know, have any money. I need somebody to show me the ropes. And I mean, it's like at least one or two a day that I personally get from people who are like, Hey, and they talk about wanting you to produce for them so they can watch. And it's like, there's no win scenario. Just as an example of you doing this now at a, at a high level, being an expert in the area, being, uh, you know, a known entity in this, this world, that's your version of mentorship to, to buy in. So you got somebody receiving or hunting for mentorship, consider mm-hmm. that's the level that you're talking about um, to make it, to produce value for the people you're talking to. So I just had to stop for a minute because it's something that comes up all the time. You you're, know? Not, you're not wrong. And I was selling hard. Time, money, knowledge, eggs. right? You got to have I put one. all my eggs in one basket. I bet on Steve. I gave you back two grand I desperately needed. I'll do anything you want me to do. I want to learn this business. <coughs> and I love you, Steve. Guess what he did? Hired me. Went and bought me a printer paper. And we literally started that fucking day. Steve put me in the car. 
He's hungry too. He drove my. I think we went to Staples, Steve. I can't remember. And we bought the cheapest printer. He bought me the cheapest printer. Oh, that's romantic. Right. Literally, (laughs) I got started that night. Right. My wife eventually helped me, but she didn't help me at that time. It was cold. You had to build up credibility again. I had fucked up her life, ruined everything, humiliated her, destroyed all her friendships, shamed her, living in a shit house on the wrong side of Detroit. One house away from the motherfucker who stole from us so we can see him every day, which oh, I still do. I don't think you ever gave me that tidbit. Oh, wow. Yes. How did you leave that part out? <laughs> God. So she had her reasons. They were good reasons, right? So Steve says yes. Turns out, sorry, Steve, I love you. Steve's not that good at training, Right. <laughs> Which is, I mean, that's a whole skill set in and of itself, and that's not abnormal for high-D personalities. It's hard to teach, right? But that's where I think this apprenticeship thing comes in. This is, I'm I'm selling this hard. I'm actually going to do a whole series on it, right? If you're not a genius or Gary Vee or whatever, there's a reason why there was the master apprenticeship model, right? What does that mean? It means you follow the the master around, do whatever he fucking wants, and you get to see how everything is done. That is the model, right? I didn't have a car. I couldn't even go on fucking appointments, right? And I hadn't talked to a seller at all. I got on the real estate with short sales off of the MLS and REO. So I know I got to go talk. So I got to learn a whole new set of shit, which I know nothing about, except for basically Detroit values and what you can sell and invest you for and overseas. I have some expertise that I can offer. So I go all in on it. And I figure out real quick, the training thing isn't going to work. But that's not Steve's problem. That's Jeremy's problem. Steve doesn't have a problem. Steve has a successful wholesale business, right? You you guys need to listen to this, how fucking precious you are, you special desert flowers. Why somebody should take time out of their profitable day to help your sorry ass, right? If you approach it like that, that's exactly what you're going to get, right? Mm -hmm. I realized this wasn't Steve's problem. This was my problem. And I just did whatever he wanted. I went with him everywhere. It didn't matter if it was my lead or his lead. I took the pictures. I helped him out. I did all the Became things. Became a value. As much as I could do. I even cooked. He's kind of a weird eater. I even cooked the food he liked. When I, when I found out. You'll have to tell liked, me more about that later. Yeah, he liked to hang out. I want to know, Steve. He liked to work and hang out. I actually set up a desk in my garage, which I turned into an office and gave him a whiteboard and gave him a place to work because he didn't like any of the places in Detroit. So I made a space for him where he can come and do his work where he was comfortable. He and cleaned I out still, the top drawer. Uh-huh. You, made, you made a fort. See what he's doing. Come, come in my right? fort. Let's play. Doing this, I got to see everything Steve did. And he's still the best closer in person I've ever seen in my life. And I've never, I don't know anything about hard closing. Anybody. Nothing. I'm starting at zero, right? I couldn't have picked a better motherfucker than Steve, right? We went on hundreds of appointments together, and I watched the same thing over and over and over again. And if you want to know what Steve does, you can go and listen to my seven-part series because I actually put together the lesson plan from everything that Steve ever taught me. So I created the lesson plan after having gone and worked for Steve for a year and a half. And I owe a lot to him. I learned how to get, get sellers to decide uh, how to sell them, work back and forth, buyer assignments, all that shit. 
CRM, manage a CRM, projections for the year, how to manage budgets, what works, postcards, letters, right? Fucking thousands of phone calls, returning phone calls. That's where follow-up Friday and boiler room came, right? A pattern begins to emerge, right? And I start to develop a discipline of prospecting. And this has been the single greatest discipline as a businessman that I have done. Because of Steve and because of wholesaling is such an active outbound thing, you don't get business without prospecting, right? So you mail and you prospect. You return phone calls. You have to do these things or you do not get deals. The mails are just to soften them up for a I call. I wasn't even thinking real, yeah. like realtor, real estate agent. So this is just a business. So just through working Steve's business, I end up prospecting something like three to four hours a day. And this is where I learn how to prospect. I listen to Steve. I write down everything he says. We Steve trains me, right? So for like for months, I just like okay. Here's what they told me. Here's why they told me no on these appointments. Why mm-hmm. they these contracts? What would you have said? Steve would give me three or four things that he would say, and I would write it down. Like I broke this shit down, right? Now in that world, what does prospecting actually mean? Like who are you calling? What are you saying? What what's a success condition of we it? We cleaned up the best on. Absentee out of state landlords. Okay. When you look at everything. And this is before, this is back. I mean, not everybody. Now it's getting hit a lot more, but yeah. 15, 16. Uh, mm. The market wasn't as hot back then. It also wasn't as competitive. There weren't as many big name wholesalers, right? It's one of the reasons why I love this area. We got some heavy hitters here. Like competition is intense, right? Iron. Michigan in general. Iron, even right? even in the real estate agent world, it's the same thing. You got to turn so iron. many transactions to make money here that the. The systems, like you go to LA and there's no reason for anybody to ever come up with a system to do a thousand deals. The, even their big producers don't need that because the sheer money they're making off a handful of sales, they would just have no need to ever do it. They don't even think it's a possibility. And then you come here and you've got though the Glovers of the world who are doing these huge numbers. And that's, that's a here thing. We've got five or six, maybe more now of the biggest hitters in the country all fighting each other out over houses that are considered not worth it in other parts of the country. And now those L.A. and New York guys are all looking at what the systems are in little old flyover country Midwest Metro Detroit. And all of a sudden they're like, holy shit, what are these people doing over there? Because they realize like, well, fuck, man, if they start bringing that with expansions down to that, down to us, they'll fucking kill us. If you haven't sold 100 houses, fuck off, right? Oh, yeah. That's that's nothing. You could be a top producer with 35 houses in the right neighborhood in L.A. Selling 100 houses is nothing in Michigan. That's why I always love when people get their brag numbers on. I'm like, yeah, how many? How many? No, 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 no. How many transactions? Tell me me the number. I did 65 million last year. Okay. Two houses. Good for you. How many? (laughs) Jeff Glover is the current champion of kicking everybody's dick in in Michigan. you got to add number two and three to beat his number, I think. Mm -hmm. It was it was like nine hundred or some shit. Like I don't know. I haven't amazing. seen the most recent numbers. I know he just keeps crushing it. Yeah, so. just, just fucking destroys destroys everything. So imagine selling selling that. So I just become Steve's apprentice and do everything he wants me to do. Anything. I go on appointments. We go. We go and do all the things he wants to do. And I learned everything about wholesaling from him. And I start putting houses under contract. It's rough at first, right? And then you start selling houses. But in that first year, I did 32 and made my cut was $52,000. 
So 32 deals for $50,000, that's not that great. I made a lot of mistakes. I did a lot of $1,000 deals on accident, right? So here's, it's really hard to write a good contract when you desperately need money, especially like wholesaling is really about managing disappointment, Mm -hmm. right? (laughs) You know, there's a needle in that haystack, but you, the only way to find the needles, you got to go through the haystack. That's what being a wholesaler is, right? So with speed and an expectation, it's going to stab you if you find it. That's why I laugh at these <laughs> pussy-ass fucking realtors, right? They're like, oh, they told me no. I was like, you guys have no idea what real competition is <laughs> or what, how many no's. You know how many fucking no's you need before you get one decent wholesale deal, right? But when you're learning it, that first year especially, I'm, I'm desperately trying to manage my emotions versus my need and my desire for money and all the fucking problems. Like, I don't even have a driver's license yet because of all these – all the, I couldn't afford to pay for tickets. Now it's back when Michigan would actually take away your driver's license and make sure you couldn't pay it. Yeah. Right. Ever, you know, or go to jail if you, you ever get caught driving a, a fucking car, which was fucking miserable, by the way, trying to do all this. So I didn't even have a car driving around with Steve. Got to do all this shit. I put it, I start putting all this stuff together. Second year, breakout year, did significantly better that year. Started shooting for ten grand. Started making more like five, six grand on every deal, and that's after splits with Steve. So we do a lot better now. I have a script, right? Now I know the call to actions. Now I actually know how to set a good appointment, right? And just you start to get some traction. Confidence builds up. I gain control over my expectations, right? I don't set bad appointments anymore. It doesn't matter if I go two or three weeks without getting a contract. A good deal is a good deal. And if it's not a good deal, fuck it. Fuck it. You just got to do the discipline of postcards, letters, postcards, letters, call, follow up, call, follow up, market in the CRM, follow up with them, build relationships. I start doing that. And then the problem with all of this, and I love Steven, nobody's really figured it out yet either. The wholesale game is so hard to leverage, right? Because the person you need is a person who can also go out and do it on their own. Yeah. Right. And once you get contracts, now you got to sell the contracts, right? So it's kind of like, so you go out and get five or six contracts and then you have to go sell five or six contracts. So you end up with like a wave, right? So then you want to sell more, you're going to get more contracts, but still you like your income is more like a sine wave right? yeah. because you got to get the contracts and you got to sell the contracts. You got to get the contracts and you try to hire people to sell them. And it's a difficult thing to scale. Right. And I loved being a wholesaler, but by the end of that second year, I was even being pretty aggressive, even for myself. Wasn't good for my wife and my relationship. I was, I call like 2015, like my angry year. I think I split 10 full cord of wood, like, I had to be very active to do it. You're constantly in a car. You're going on six to eight appointments a day. Then you're coming back and dialing for two or three hours. And I and yelling at me. And I didn't see a way. <laughs> I could. Why were you getting yelled at? No, it's just how we communicate. Yeah. Oh. When we're alone, yeah. we tend to amplify yeah. ridiculously over time. Yeah, absolutely. So because I was yelling at my own shit, so we basically just stayed in the same space and yelled yeah. for a while. <laughs> started a rock band in the garage. <laughs> oh yeah, I don't know. Angry white real estate agents probably isn't exactly a well, saleable band. I, my my rebirth of my real estate business was in my garage. Yeah. Yeah. That is still my office. It always is. People like coming in, like, I, we, I have space here and I could do boiler room here. And mm-hmm. they're like, can we just do it in your garage? Yep. <laughs> I'm like, 
Yeah, yeah, we could do it in my garage, I guess. It's like a rundown garage. Well, they also know you're going to smoke so, food. Well, that's true. <laughs> that happens too. So I guess people like the garage, but yeah, that's where that's where it all started was in, in the garage. Still love that. This is nicer though. I got a podcast table. It's very fancy. Fancy schmancy. You have this nice made too, table. didn't you? Yeah. Which, by the way, mortgages by joerandall.com. Thank you very much, Joe Randall, for the official Renegade Detroit Investors podcast table. There. Mm-hmm. I got it in. Nice. That was that was solid. Yeah, he's mad I got it in there at the end. But anyway, I didn't see a way I could leverage my my way out of it. So the only way I can make more money is to do more deals or bigger deals. And that's when the market was getting hot and the competition was really getting intense, right? So Because over this time, again, if you're out of the area, you might not realize that the and, and the word has gotten out now at this point that this is a, a hot market, so you have people coming in and when you get a huge influx of new investors, uh I mean basically they don't know what they're looking at. So now you got a whole you know, double a decimal place more people who are hunting and giving more money than they should be for deals, so it's hard to find actual deals. So you know, they don't know any better. Well Joe Delia, who I met before he was nobody. Actually, a failed investor getting his dick kicked in, right? Mm-hmm. At Silas. Can't flip. Or Silas or whatever. Can't, you know, like, anyway, he, he becomes a real estate agent, does a bunch of shit. Fast forward. His team blows up. Mm-hmm. He starts doing big shit. And the whole time, he's, you know, Joe. Yeah. Always trying to close you. Oh, yep. Joe's always be closing, always be closing. Uh, yeah, I think, I think he texted me trying to get me to do something. I, he's yeah, got he, a new lender he wants. Always. I don't know. I still don't care about getting getting people over to KW, and every time he still tells me. Build, exactly your pro- build, build your profit share tree. Yeah, go where you want to. I don't care. If you want to go to KW. Honestly, Jeremy, I really think he's on to something. Burgess. I think you should grow your profit share tree because you are in mine. So I need you and Joe to add as many people as possible. Is that a disclaimer? Is that like a, a no. fiduciary disclaimer? I apologize for fucking nothing. No, you need to go find more agents. So anybody who wants to be a real estate agent, just call Jeremy. He's very friendly. He'll Jeremy, help you. Jeremy He's building uh, – he just hired a first buyer's agent. There's a lot of opportunity at the Renegade Realty Group. Did you like that? That, a, that was my pitch for you. I, I do like how your voice changed into your commercial – that's it. I need them to buy from this motherfucker. <laughs> Sign up. Buy today. And then as soon as he's done, the Tommy the wants a plane. Buy from okay? this motherfucker. Right? He wants a fucking plane. <laughs> We're not going to get it if you're not pulling your weight, folks. Okay? So change your brokerage. No, I'm just kidding. Go no, he's not. He's not go. changing. No, he's serious. Do yeah. it. Go where you want to go. If that's KW, write in my name. That's my thing. Here's what I think. You're where you want to be. Why should I assume any different? Mm-hmm. I just don't give a fuck that much about where you're at. You have to care more than I do, right? This is my problem with recruiting, right? You have to care more than I do. If you're happy where you're at, well, why am I coming and interrupting your day? I don't give a shit. Work there until you die. If you're happy. <laughs> Jeremy's recruiting desk. Yeah. You're here. So is, is it a yes or a this no? This is like from the Rabinowitz School of Private Lending well, no, Marketing. I, just don't. I don't really want to fucking talk to you. Well, how arrogant of me to assume, oh, by the way, my life is so much better over here. And, of course, you have no idea what you're doing. And you just stumble fucked your way into what you're doing. And let me come help you out. Come over here and sign up for KW. (laughs) I think you're probably where you're at because you want to be there. Right? And if you're curious about it, you might come talk to me, which several people have. And some people Mm -hmm. have signed up. And then some people have left and done other things, which I'm totally cool with. Who gives a shit? Right? I probably need to change this mentality, but I just don't fucking care enough. So go where you want to go. Joe won't leave me alone, though. Mm. So this is another time I had to not listen to my wife. Because I'm like, you know, 
I can't really see how I can leverage this wholesale thing forever. It's getting more and more competitive. I'm going to have to do more and bigger deals. I'm already working my ass off. If I'm ever going to be able to not have to work so much, we're going to have to explore something different, which was kind of, it was a hard decision for me to make because I thought wholesaling was my way out, but really it was just a step up, right? So Joe pitched me on being a real estate agent. Uh, why did I ever, I was never going to be an agent. I fucking hate agents and I still do. And if you're an agent, you probably do suck. Go back and reevaluate your life. You're probably the 90% who fucking rapes and pillages your family for 6%. Go make it a business, not a hobby. And uh, don't use the National Association of Realtors to protect you. So I was never going to be an agent. You were going to be selling pencils from a cop on the side of the road. That's where I wanted almost every agent. And I still do. And that's not changed. I just want you all to know so that the office to... door here, what does it say? Not your office. Go away. Yeah. That's what you got instead of a nameplate. So, yeah. Yeah. I wrote it with a pen on a piece of paper. That's not in uh, culture, Jeremy. Don't care. Stay the fuck out of my office and stop moving my shit, okay? I don't go in your office and move your shit. So I have to consider doing, like, basically joining the dark side. That's how I felt about real. I still kind of do. You actually use that language. You dark ask, side. Yeah, you use that constantly. Talk about having to park my ego again, but here's why I did. Joe, in a very short period of time, built a business from nothing to millions, right? And that's obviously- Limited capital. With limited capital and a lot of leverage, Mm -hmm. right? And here's the problem I'm having on the wholesale side is I'm watching all these great people who know way more than me about wholesaling and flipping have problems scaling. What, am I going to come along and solve it? Right? I made a few attempts, and it didn't work. There's dead pilgrims on that road. So I have to change my strategy, and now my strategy might include joining the dark side. Right? Uh, I'm bad at paperwork. I don't like tracking things. Buying a government license must have hurt you so I bad inside. I really didn't want to get a real estate license. <laughs> I'm really against that thing. I don't even think I should have to have a driver's license, frankly. I don't need your fucking permission to drive a motor vehicle. Thank you, government. Got some Ron Swanson here. Nobody asked, can I ride this horse? You should all be fucking ashamed of yourselves, you know? They would have killed Englishmen. You, you need a license to ride a horse. But anyway, this is the situation we're in, right? So now i got to go get a license. <laughs> yeah, let's take it in. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. I was about to jump on there with you, too. I was like, ah, townspeople. <laughs> Same thing. So I'm like, I'm going to go be a real estate agent. Um, but okay, I want to learn, I wanna learn this business. So Joe pitched me, and the split was we do all your paperwork. We do all that. You get the CRM. You do everything. You keep 50%. We keep 50%, right? You were like, man, this is how I graduated high school. Holy so shit. So <laughs> I was like, okay, let's, let's give this a shot. Let's give this a shot. So I have this awkward period where I'm wholesaling and trying to learn how to be a realtor, doing it the way the book tells you to do it. Some parts of the book are right. Some parts of the book are wrong. So what does my day look like? I come in for four months, Monday through Friday, starting at 8 a.m. I cold call 500 people. Fizbo's and expired. Fizbo's expired, circle dialing, dialing for open houses, all the shit, right? It takes me – sometimes you're done at 11.30 in the day. Sometimes you're done at 12.30, right? And then I go do my wholesale appointments in the afternoon so I can make money as I'm trying to learn this business, right? Can you – you know the rest of the story? Do you think that works, Tommy? No. No, it does not work. Right. 
I mean, well, you know, at one point there is. I mean, you can't pull money out of it, but it's it was, not impossible. This this was a scenario again, like when when this was coming out as as the the way to do things. It was the office I was in had forty seven agents in it. It was 2012. In about uh, probably 2016, I think there was close to 500. Yeah. And they were all getting told the same thing. Yes. So it's not that it doesn't work. It's that 85 people are doing it the same 10 hours, you know, not even 10 hours, like, you know, the first three hours in the morning. By the time you call somebody at 9 o'clock, they're like, if anybody ever calls me again, I'm going to shoot you because they're so fed up. So it, it's not that the strategy doesn't work, but that shit wasn't getting anybody super paid at well, the time. Well, I did pivot that to for sale by owners for wholesale, and I cleaned mm-hmm. up on that, which, by the way, I still have a script, by the way. Because hey, no one was doing you it You still then. have that house for sale, Tommy? Great. No, 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 I'm not a... I, I am a realtor, but don't hold that against me. I was actually calling to make you a I use that cash phrase a lot. Offer. <laughs> don't hold it against me. They love that. Yeah. Don't hold it against me. I'm actually calling to make you a feral cash offer. Is that something you're interested in? You can absolutely clean up cold calling yeah. or sell by owners for wholesale leads. Yeah. Right? But as an agent with everybody else doing it, it does mm-hmm. not work. No. Right? I also decide very early. Not at a volume that's worth the effort. No, no. Not, certainly not for cold calling 2,500 people a week. Yeah. Right? Something like. 25 hours of your week is spent on a yeah. triple line dialer, pacing back and forth, listening to gangster rap, waiting for interrupting the grandma between yeah. eight and on 12 30. Right. Like I didn't mind. I cold called Europe. I cold called Australia, New Zealand, California, all that shit. So, but it actually paid, right. Mm-hmm. When I was doing all the wholesale urban for wholesalers. I actually made paid. some, I did that in Jersey and in Massachusetts. And then I referred the list. They were just real listings. I referred them out. I actually made more money than I got off commissions here locally. Cause the numbers were so high. Yeah. 20% <laughs> off a deal there. Yeah. That's a big money. Right? Yeah. Something here that's, you know, half a million is a mil five there. Yeah, so I don't so even I, pay a referral fee on something less than 150,000. You yeah. can just go work it yourself. Yep. It's too much fucking work. You're not doing me a favor. Yeah, yeah. At least if you're not doing it a hobby, right? Yeah. You're fucking your friends and family over four right. to six deals a year. Sure, yeah. you could take a 30% cut, right? You're paying for pro photos, science, answering the phone, following up. You just can't afford to do that shit. Yeah, yeah. I notice also that there's a culture of not prospecting. And I hate to say it, but that's the way it was. The leads got handed out, and all these leads came with referral fees from the the lead network, right? So I could see agents dependent upon the company for a source of leads. And I also realized that if you're not generating your own leads, you're the commodity. Mm -hmm. You're the cow, right? You're the beef. I got the lesson, right? I'm not going to be the mark anymore. So I decide that I am not going to take one company lead. And I'm not going to work buyers. All I'm going to do are, is take listings. Mm. Uh, I did it your way. It didn't work. I'm not going to cost you anything, Joe. You can take all this shit off, but I'm going to go do my own thing. And Joe, love you, man. He's a cool dude. He let me do it. He's like, fine, fuck it. You're not costing me anything. Go do your thing. Right? So that's when I started doing the... I came up with a plan since I run Renegade Detroit Investors for the listing side that, and my plan was basically this. I'm a new agent. Yeah. I've sold a lot of properties. I've never been a real estate agent before. never been, don't even really know how to do this. Right. Nobody even has a reason to work with me. That's the reality of the situation. We're talking about zero. When you're starting a business, stop pretending anybody has any reason to work. Nobody has a single fucking reason to work with you. None. They owe you nothing. I hate that small business post shit where you're like, here's my small business and why you come shop at my store because it's so fucking hard for me. Nobody cares. Fuck you with that shit. 
I'm not, I'm not interested at all. Don't want any of it. Nobody else cares, right? This is the position I'm in. I have no experience with a ton of relationships, and they have no reason to hire me. How do I interrupt longstanding quality relationships where I can get a chance at that business in the future, right? So how I first started was I targeted 10 of the people I thought I could help the most. I went through people since I've had done fix and flips, fix and rents, land contracts, wholesales. I had that wealth of experience. There was a lot I could provide to people, right? So I went through Renegade Detroit Investors, targeted 10 people I thought I could help the most and started to help them for free. I would call every week, check in on them, see if they need any help. I'd go meet them at their projects. I'd run ARVs. I would try and hook them up with rehabbers or try and put people together. Um, I would do all of that, right? Uh, so you're doing it wrong. You need to do these postcards, right? Here's what you're doing wrong. Like I'd sit down and evaluate them and then I'd meet with them and work, work on their business. So I improve their business and help make money for free. And all provided I wanted, value. All I wanted was a shot at the listing, right? We got to get that on like a loop. Well, that's what I mean. That's what it comes down to: is providing value. Like what are you selling? Yeah, what bait are you putting on the hook? Right. Mm-hmm. I think people assume they're more and they have more to offer than they really do. When really, they have somebody they already like and love. Yeah. Why do they need you? What are you going to do? Different? You have to provide more I'm value. Take a chance on some new person. Mm-hmm. This is what you're asking them to do. With, by the way. Their business, their livelihood. This is why I get so mad about this. And I think we're this this people real money, right? Real money, not bank money, real money. Their life savings, all this is like important shit, right? They're just gonna take a chance with you. That's the reality of the situation. So I designed a plan or I thought I stood a chance. It took me about six months of doing that before it started to pay dividends. Of course. What you do have to realize that if you're going to do something like this, some people are going to take advantage of it. That's the reality. And then some people aren't going to make it or it's not going to work. But the fact of the matter is you will find and be able to help some people. It's a numbers game. One out of ten. Yes. Something like it was better than that. It was about 30%. I, I did know these people. I did have the advantage of Renegade Detroit investors for years, right? So I didn't have to do it as cold as someone off the street. So I had some advantages of networking, right? Help them. This is how I get my listing base. My first year just fucking sucks, right? Like, I actually make less money my first year as a realtor than I made the previous year if I don't consider my this the the money I made wholesaling, right? Mm-hmm. And then I, I see though that it's possible. They're like, okay, I now have some momentum. I see where this is going, and now this wholesale aspect is actually holding me back. And that was another thing that was hard to do because I had, I had become part of my identity, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, very much. You kind of get addicted to it. It's like hunting or fishing if you're like that, right? <laughs> you loved it. It's just, oh, man, you're on the hunt, right? You're mm-hmm. on the prowl. If you like finding things or yeah. scouting things or there's treasure in here or the hunt, like that yeah, thrill of the one. chase. This is the one. This is the right yeah. lead. That one. A real estate agent is the polar opposite of that nothing happens today nothing might happen this year but you might get an opportunity year two right Mm -hmm. how you generally interrupt existing long-term well-established relationships you provide more value with no money until the other person fucks up and then you get your opportunity and then don't fuck it up Mm -hmm. that's what happens i get this 
shitty Instagram lead from this schmuck out of Nebraska who has no fucking clue what he's doing, but I have no reason, no business. I would never take this business now, but I have none, nothing, nada, niente. I'm going to work the fuck out of this thing, right? He signs the listing agreement. I'm like, doesn't matter. He's a piece of shit or it doesn't work. I'm, I'm going to figure this out, right? So it's an East English village. It's not a bad house, but stupid prices, all that other stuff. I finally get this thing sold, right? And we can't go to closing because of deed fraud. I got to get title clear. <sighs> Thank he, you. He used, to, he used to clear his own clouds. I'd talk to him and he'd be like, what are you doing? Oh, I'm getting rid of him. Come with the county building. Like, are you kidding? Like, just literally, this is no, no agents do shit like this. this I do not this shit a, all the fucking time. I yeah. used to do it as a mortgage broker and it was the craziest. You have to. Dude. You got oh. some cost in this thing. Yeah. Best thing I ever learned was from Steve Lando because before I did this for 12 years, he was a title guy. So I learned all sorts of ways <laughs> yep. to clear title. If you can't clear your title, man. You, you, you're dead. You got nothing. Well, this is an epic story. So <laughs> I get legacy title to give me all the information they can. I use all my knowledge as a wholesaler and I skip trace the notary and the person who signed it. I then start stalking all last known addresses and phone numbers, get a hold of the notary and begin to gently terrorize her with threats of lawsuits and fraud. And I know you notarized it and you probably didn't realize you were notarizing, but I need to find him. And if I can't find him, you're going to suffice. And the fact of the matter is, if you're between me and a paycheck, that's a bad place to be. And this is the only paycheck I had. <laughs> you're the only thing I got to do all day. <laughs> I have nothing I'm else better to, eat you. to fucking do. So when somebody comes up and says, well, this deal's so small, I'm not going to make it on that one. How do you think you start any career? Shut the fuck up. You have nothing else better to do. Go do some work, right? I would never do this deal again. Anyway, I terrorize this lady. I end up waiting outside this P.O. box trying to catch him. I put mail in. I start calling last known relatives. Anyway, I finally, the notary lady's like, look, the, I'm working with the Wayne County prosecutor. She's going to give you a call. I'm like, yeah, whatever. You just tell me some shit. I'm going to fucking ruin your life. I'm going to figure out where you go to church. I'm going to tell everybody <laughs> you defraud people for money, for a notary. You, how much did you get paid, 20 or 30 bucks? This is the embarrassing part. One of the Wayne County Jeremy. prosecutor assistants calls me, and I talk shit to her. I'm like, sure you are. How I know you're not your friend, whatever, blah, blah, blah. And gives me her number. I, I go, she's like, well, go to the website, call and ask for me, and they'll put me on the phone. So I do that. Oh, sorry. By the way, yeah, my bad. Sorry. I thought the lady was lying to me. They gave me a, what do they call it, uh, fraudulent deed, whatever. I got a deed from the Wayne County Prosecutor's Office, they actually had this guy in custody, and this was another case they didn't know about. That through terrorizing this network of people, I floated up to the surface to where the Wayne County Prosecutor's Assistant <laughs> called me. I got the the deed so I can clear title for a guy who didn't even care. Like, he didn't even care, right? And I, I made, after my split, it was like $237. I remember that day, and you told me, and I was like, what the fuck are you doing, man? <laughs> I was like, I was legitimately pissed. I had a I had a deal blowing up, so I was already angry on the phone yelling. Then he called me and told me that I'm like, I was so fucking mad. I was kicking things. We're like, both gonna be chopping all your wood up I in your backyard. I was so pissed. Man, you like, made negative forty an hour. I was what just like, what are you doing? doing? You're clearing title for people. What the fuck are you doing? But I mean, it was impressive as hell. I did this some of this on Facebook Live, mm -hmm. like uh, reputationally. Yeah, like, that's the thing. This got out, and all of a sudden. 
and I sold it too. I, I'm good at I'm good at selling, right? And I was like, I don't even give a fuck about this guy, and he's a piece of shit. And look what I'm willing to do for him for two hundred thirty seven dollars. Imagine if you gave me some real money, what I could do for you. Right. That became my sales pitch. Yep. Hey man, it's a good right. one. I thought it was badass. So take your lemons and make lemonade and stop crying, right? It's just like what you had said. It makes for great content. You had that moment where you're like, you can't take this from me. No, you cannot take this. This is it. I don't ever have to pay someone to do this. I don't have to learn it again. I, you can't take this nope. away. I'm gonna go do it. It goes back to that the same thing. You can't be loyal to people. You're loyal to values. That means that what that actually means you're saying is that you're you align. With people who have the values you're looking for, not the people themselves. Yes. So in order to attract that, you have to be one of those people of value that has that because those people are going to gravitate to you. And if you weren't that person before, like I wasn't that person before, you have to accept it's going to take some time. And then you have to accept that some people are never going to get over it. And they're never going to accept that you're not that person anymore. Mm-hmm. Just deal with it all. That's how that's how it works. Well, values aren't platitudes. They're actions in motion. So you have to stack up the actions that make those things real in order for them to actually count. Or else it's just lip service and intentions. And that's not the same shit. Well, I'm about commitment. Yeah. At this point, I'm like getting some business. I decide to leave wholesale behind. Um, that's a big deal. Especially when it's functioning, when you got two I businesses, tell my wife we you might drop one that makes money. money. Mm-hmm. You, you know, like I'm real popular again. Um, I have to let one of my favorite people in the world go. Eric Friday was a partner. He's still a dear friend, and he's an excellent wholesaler and flipper. And we still do business together. Um, I had to kick him loose on his own because I was working with him, operating with him. I hated doing that. I love working with Eric. I'm hoping, and I know again in the future we will do business together. As partners, um, I still do a lot of stuff for him and help him out. So I hated doing that because I know he's talent, right? But I can't hold back talent because you know you got to kick him loose, go free. Yeah, I go do that, and I decide. Joe talked me into going to Bold. If you know anything about Keller Williams, there's a lot of Jesus juice in this. I call it Keller Jesus, right? It's like a cult thing. It's, it's the Kool Aid you drink. Keller Williams is 70% excellent stuff that you should do 100% of the time and 30% Keller Jesus. And I'm not hating on you if you like that thing. Do your thing. Uh, I don't like it. So it's not something I enjoy. It's it's good advice framed as a sugar-coated pill that is sometimes hard to swallow for people who don't digest things that way. But if you're like me, like those who are made not to believe – right. You just have to accept it. Yeah. So I go to Bolt. I accept the 30%. I do all the stupid shit. I scream. I yell. I do the money's all on you. Oh, they God. rain money down on you. And yeah. I had the best Bolt instructor, I think. Who'd you have? Robert. I always forget his last name. I always get it wrong. Anyway, he's a stone cold killer out of Orlando, Florida. And the first uh, – it bold is like this eight-week thing. It's like a production course, right? It like travels bold. around the country and yeah, it's like – it's, it's $800, right? And you go mm-hmm. do bold. And essentially what bold is is – Yeah, Mary Kay has one of those too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You have 20 – you make 20 uh, – you have to commit to making 20 contacts a day, which is just such – especially by Keller Williams standard bullshit, right? Uh, but if you don't, then you have to make commitments, right? And people did this. And we came back for the second one. And the first thing he did is like, okay, how many listings did you sign? And the first table missed their goals by 97%. He spent 30 minutes picking apart this table in front of everybody. He's like, what the fuck are you even doing? 
It's like, wait, why would you come in here and say you're going to do this and then not come back in and do this? What, did you actually call these people? You know this was $800, right? You, okay, we should adjust your numbers. What you're telling me is you're a zero listing week, like, and I love this guy. This guy was speaking <laughs> to my heart. I was like, oh, I was like, where have you been? They're bleeding. He's going to eat them now. And I'm like, I could do this, right? I could do this. I had to negotiate with my wife. It was originally going to be a $10,000 check. I didn't have fucking $10,000, but I had to talk it down to $5,000. I didn't tell Joe I was going to do it. I went to work. I set up Facebook Live. I handed Facebook Live to Liz. I put Joe on the spot, and I gave – I wrote a $5,000 check to Joe Dealey, who I know would have 100% fucking cashed it. Hell yeah, he would have. If I didn't. <laughs> I said, if I don't take 62 listings by December 1st, Cash that check. I was at 17 when I gave him that. Mm-hmm. I remember. I had five months to do it. And I go in and I do bold like that. And I decide I'm not going to have a bullshit conversation. It's going to be 20 real real estate conversations a day, which is how I ended up with my second back surgery. Anyway, so I do this. I take a listing every other day. I post this on Facebook Live. Everybody gets behind it. They think it's the greatest fucking thing ever. And my wife, for the first time ever, gets completely on board. Like, what the fuck are you doing? Are you on Facebook? That's $5,000. You need to go take listings. Do I need to drive you to appointments? So it was fucking awesome. Like, we're all on the same team. We're going 20 hours a day. And I make this epic push. I end up taking 77 listings. I don't have to do it. The rest is fucking history. But leaving the wholesale thing behind so I can focus on the listing part and letting go of that part of my identity to learn how to leverage and then making a public goal where I was not going to fail. I just – there was no chance I was going to face that shame, right? So I actually lost my mind at the end because it was – the dealer group, had, at least at the time, had a pretty good back-end system for admin. But we had a few bumps the last couple days, and I was like frantic. Where's my fucking listing docs? Why aren't they going? I got don't you fuck this up I got for six me. hours. Till I, I need to get these last three fucking listings signed. You know, spit like, flying everywhere, uh, foaming. Like, okay, calm down, Jerry. Calm down, Jesus. Like I get a little too competitive um, sometimes. So if you're not committed to the thing, nobody else is going to be committed to you as well. If you're approaching real estate or your business as a hobby, whatever the fuck it is you're doing, and so I do this sometimes on the side. I realized that before I did that, I wasn't committed to being an agent or a listing agent. I was just dabbling in it, and I was still doing wholesale. Burn that shit down. You got Sometimes you got to let go of the old thing to get the new thing, right? So take that pay cut. I got the 77 listings. I actually only closed 38 of them that year, but that jump-started my next year to 68 closed listings, which brings us what well, I took 97 listings last year, closed to 68 of them. And I'm on track this year for 120. Badass. So, and and hired my first buyer's agent. Well, and you're also shifting your price points too, because over the years you've migrated from lower price points to now. Small deals lead to big deals. So I mean, that's seize a big, your fucking opportunities. Don't say this opportunity's not good enough for me. Yeah, I mean, that's you're probably not just not good enough for the opportunity. Is the truth that one twenty seven doesn't just represent a, uh, a transaction count increase? That's going to be a fairly sizable volume. Uh, multiplier too, so that's a yeah. big deal. So especially now I'm on my own, I don't have to do the split anymore. Too. Now don't fuck up. <laughs> it doesn't seem possible at this point. Boom. So at least that was the sweetest little set of words of encouragement yeah. I've ever heard. Don't fuck it up, Jeremy. This is how men tell each other we love each yeah. other. It's true. <laughs> that and food. So you better fucking cook too the whole time you're winning. <laughs> <laughs>
I never stopped. I know. You keep sending me pictures of the food you're making while I'm eating a taco. Thanks, bro. Well, I'm really sending them to Tom's, but I don't want you to feel left out. I know you prefer, like, the immigrant goat meat from behind the counter at the discount price. I buy things on sale. <laughs> I got three kids and a mother. Fuck you. I'm not buying the good meat. And they get the Kroger shit. And you just because I know it annoys you and you know how much I spent on something, too. So you, send me, you send me a receipt from Prime and Proper. I'm like, yeah. fuck you. No way. Yeah. You lost a shit when I did that. <laughs> I'm staying at Andiamo's. Fuck that. Hey, man, best foie gras I ever had in my life, so worth it. Fair enough. Worth it. What, what am I going to take all this money with me? I don't no. do shit, so occasionally I go out and spend a retarded amount of money on you got to build a golden mausoleum. What the hell are you talking about? <laughs> so there you go. So finally, long awaited. And whatever else you want to know. I mean, I don't know. We already went through the FBI and everything in the whole world. Now where are you going in the future? Yeah, so what the hell that? else is there? That's the question. So what's I'm the perfect burger? <laughs> do, well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to try and take up 90% of the dispositions market of all wholesalers. All right. Here's the problem wholesalers have. It's the same problem I fucking had then, right? You're good at getting contracts, but then you got to stop taking contracts to go sell contracts. This is a problem. And when you do that, I don't care how good you are or how much you try and even it out, you end up with a sine wave with income, right? Now, 10% of what you go and sign, wholesalers, you never have a problem selling. I'm not your solution, right? But with my network, Renegade Detroit Investors, I have every phone number of everybody who ever came and gave me a card. I, My new agent and I, Jay Smith, are going to go through, call every motherfucker. We're going to put you on the list, and we're going to start matching you guys up with properties. I know every one of these wholesalers, I have relationships. You're going to want to hire me. Otherwise, I'll be working against you. You don't think you, who you think you negotiate better than me or you have better relationships Ooh, than that, I do? That was a good close. It's just not going to happen. <laughs> that was right? a good, yeah. We're going to deliver exceptional <laughs> yeah. service. And it goes without saying, those who sign with us get shit first, right? But I'm going to eat up this dispositions market for 6%. Or two grand, whatever's greater. So it's less than fifty thousand dollars. You're paying us a minimum of two grand, and we're going to sell all your off-market wholesale properties for commission. And That's close what we're them. Do. We're going to close them. We're going to solve this problem for you. If it's a deal, I would, your shitty deals we're not interested in, right? And we can do it. We have the database to do it. I got the young man to work it. I don't think there's any doubt in your mind that I will call you or Jay Smith will call you. And for those who can't go through all 2,500 wholesalers or comb through the MLS, that's what we're going to do. We're going to go look at every deal. We're going to analyze every deal, and then we're going to go match it up with investors in our database, and we're going to start with the ones who signed with us first. And eventually, if you don't think I'm going to turn this to a relationship to where we're the only ones who get the property, you would be a fool. I can't imagine after doing this for a year or two that that wouldn't be the case if we do as well as I think we're going to. So I don't think you're going to find somebody who's going to work as hard for as little. A lot of times, the wholesaler, you're giving up half the deal. To solve your buyer problem. I brought your buyer. You're giving up half the profit. But that lets them focus on volume, which is really the actual what business. what trying to do. Imagine if you actually get to keep the lion's share, right? Mm-hmm. Now, you got to write good contracts. We're going to have to get access, right? Mm-hmm. We're going to have to do a few things differently. We're going to – I will make sure we solve this, right? We're going to have to get disclosure signed at closing. There are going to be some things we have to do in order for me to be able to get a commission check. 
through the MCA. The fact of the matter is you should be doing this anyway to cover your own ass. I know I rarely did it as a wholesaler. But we'll get agency disclosure signed. We'll get disclosure signed. We will take care of the whole thing, and we will get as many of them to closing as fast as possible, right? If you don't know what you're doing, I will show up and teach you how to take photos too. It starts with you, the wholesaler, and your photos. If you're taking shitty photos, fuck off. Our first appointment is how to take photos, right? If you don't want to talk to me, go listen to my seven-part wholesale series. One part is actually how to take the photos. If you do it the same that way every time, you're not going to have a problem selling properties, right? And we'll just start matching you up. I estimate that the market for the wholesale is something like $25 million a year through my known network through wholesale deals, right? Mm -hmm. It's my goal in the next year to try and capture something like half of that for 6%. That's my goal. Solve this problem once and forever, hopefully. Not the good deals. You know the ones I'm talking about where you, you it's a stellar deal. You call your partner that you love. Keep doing that. You don't need me for that. Don't use me for shit you don't need. Use me for the stuff that's ruining your life, and I'll save you money, and it'll get done better. I got a transaction coordinator. We do this all the time. It's managed. Once I get a property under contract, it is managed professionally through close by my transaction coordinator, or I start ruining people's lives when they don't listen. I've seen it happen. I will absolutely do it. I will show up at your church. I will send mail to people on your street, right? Like the point is, once we Special go under contract skills, and, and we get you. past inspection, <laughs> we're going to close or I'm going to ruin your EMD or something, right? You can know with a high level of certainty that everything that can be done to close that thing will be done. And then you don't have to worry about it anymore. And this is one of the greatest things I learned from Joe and Renee Delia on the dealer group, whom I'm also forever grateful the value of an excellent transaction coordinator is unparalleled. I would not have been able to do any of this without that leverage, right? If you're good at getting business, you probably suck at the other thing. Don't be afraid to hire that part out. And that's not sharing profit or wasting money. That's rocket fuel. It started with Carolyn. Carolyn was the greatest transaction coordinator on the Dealey Group. She's also the one who trained my new transaction coordinator and is continuing to train her, Kelly. Because of everything that Carolyn did, I was able to build such a, a, biz, a successful business quickly where I, take more, I took more listings than everybody on the Dealey Group combined, right? Like I don't – nobody takes listings that much. Well, they're, they're, they actually had shirts made up in a contest. Yeah. The whole Dealey Group against Jeremy is a shirt, Jeremy versus everybody. <laughs> it wasn't even close. No, there wasn't any it competition. It wasn't even close. It, it, it took – I think I went and counted up. It took 23 agents to get within five listings of me. You had to add up 23 agents to get that many listings. The point being, it's not bragging. It's that if there's no Carolyn, that doesn't happen. So I was missing a piece I didn't realize I was missing. Yeah, yeah tell me about it. <laughs> not only do you have to worry about dispositions, you need somebody managing that transaction so you can get back out and get more contracts, right? When you hire Renegade Realty Group, you get both. That's what you get. Get it for 6% or a minimum two grand. That's what, that's what you're going to get. So... I think it's a great value. We're going to implement it. We already started this week. We will eventually get to you. So if you want to reach out, 313-600-2133. We're a little shaky right now. We're working on the database. You know I'm a lot more action than I am organization. But thank Jesus for my uh, transaction coordinator and Carolyn working hard in the background. 
where everywhere I'm weak and I suck. So to build the infrastructure. Yeah. Wherever I have a hole, I have someone ten times better than me in that hole, and they are way earning that money. So I mean, it's what you have a way with words. They yeah, roll over yeah, me like poetry. You're welcome. Did I sell oh, so that hard enough? There you have it, Jeremy Burgess. All holes filled. <laughs> Do you like money? Three one three six zero zero two one three three. Simple as that. If you're selling or buying. I will also do retail work too, by the way. It's not just this. I do fit better with investors. Um, you're going to like Jay better than me. He's an excellent buyer's agent. And we're going to get him trained up even better. So that's well, the future. I guess that brings us – does that bring us to the end of the 100th episode of view. Renegade Detroit that's Investors? Would it be more questions? I don't know. You gave us the, the, the past and you gave us the future. I don't think Which there's anything genius, left. By the way. I've been I tried it on the daily group a few times, but I couldn't find anybody to work hard enough. So it's I mean, it's a different it's a different machine and this is it's, it's a renegade machine. Months, it's gonna be six to twelve months of horseshit and then it's gonna blow up. That's how it always goes. So nobody wants to do the six to twelve months digging the horseshit out of the stall, but that's what we're gonna go do. We're gonna go clean it out, fix it, and then we're gonna know and then we're gonna sell everything. So and then we'll have the whole market because who else is serving that market? Who else is going to want to do that? Nobody wants to do that. The people who even have the businesses don't want to do it. So I'm not too worried. Provided we provide good value. So mm. I think we'll be okay. Well, I guess uh, I want to thank my guest, Jeremy Burgess, for his time today. I would like to encourage you to check out what he's working on. You want me to read your details here? Yeah, yeah, read it. All right. Yeah. Jeremy Burgess, you can get him at Jeremy at RenegadeRealtyGroup.com. His number is 313-600-2133. You can find him on RenegadeDetroit.com. Also, find the RDI Meetup at Meetup.com front slash Investors, And you can hit him up on Facebook, Facebook.com front slash Detroit Investment Club. If you enjoy and find this podcast helpful, please share it with your friends that you think would enjoy it. This is a free podcast, and your sharing really helps it out, gets it out to your network, and that's how things blow up viral. So, so work it out. Also, if you have any comments or suggestions, reach out. Let them know. Again, RenegadeDetroit.com. You also get them on Twitter at, at Jeremy Burgess. That's B-U-R-G-E-S-S. And find them on YouTube, too, at Detroit Wholesalers, uh, YouTube.com front slash user Run slash Detroit Wholesalers. Uh, as I wrap up this podcast, I want to take a moment to encourage you to take the steps you need to become financially independent. There are many distractions, mistakes, poisonous people, and bad habits that may prevent you from starting or continuing your goals, but fuck that, stick with it. Don't give up. Do something every day that gets you closer to your goals, even if it's only one step. Thank you for listening and your attention, and I'll catch you on the next podcast. Until then, crush it. You're all going to die. <laughs> Heat death of the universe. Only question is, is how you check out. Do you want it on your feet or your fucking knees? Begging. I ain't much for begging. Nuke it from orbit. Peace.